This week we're fortunate to have on a guest, long-standing member of Nexusora, project leader, and indeed practicing aerospace engineer, Cameron, who you've almost certainly seen around if you are a Nexus Aurora member within the Discord forums. It's an absolute pleasure talking with him this episode with insights that this man has on the aerospace industry as exists in the United States and around the world are phenomenal. In this episode of the Nexus Aurora podcast, I probe his mind. There's so much about industry, about engineering, about starting companies, about up and coming technologies that I've been aching to ask him. That's this week on the Nexus Aurora podcast. So we started this off with a discussion on architecture and its importance among the space noids and among the general community of aerospace enthusiasts. It was one of the other routes I might have gone down. Certainly I do a lot of illustration and things like this. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for good illustration quality, like for communicating uh, the essence of space travel, like to, especially to uh, you know, interested average people and so on who, who want to come into the, uh, the project. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've spoken to a lot of the architects to kind of ask them, you know, why are there so many of you just coming in randomly and unconnected? And I think it's it, the answer I've gotten, the kind of consensus is that it's a whole new playing field within the field of architecture with the sky is, is well, no longer really the limit, right? Because you have lower gravity, you have much more, uh, a lot more concerns in terms of your structures and how you're going to deal with things like radiation. Um, how you're going to be able to anchor yourself into into uh, regolith without necessarily being able to do all the industrial operations that you do on Earth, right? So it's a whole new ballpark for them to think about approaching this. And I, the architects I know have all been very creative people in general. So having to be able having an opportunity to bring that creativity to something completely new uh, and rebuilding architecture really from the ground up in the context of outer space is something that's apparently really alluring to that to that specific group which it makes sense right it's a very interesting topic for for more than just aerospace engineers in general of course yeah and thinking about it other than seasteading and uh, i'm interested in that too it has a very difficult time uh, justifying itself economically and so on and so the like there's not that much special that really that you can do with seasteading other than that, there there really isn't that much in uh, in the cutting edge of new industrial design and in particular architecture and so on, really that we have available on Earth right now. The the best thing really that we have in the on the horizon would be uh, space travel. So I guess it makes perfect sense. This is exactly why I've gotten into the field myself. Yeah, I think I, I, if you're looking for a really truly unique experience uh, or to work with something or even to work with it as, a, as a passion or a hobby it's it's got to be space i mean is the final frontier right if you want to take basically anything that you do on earth and make it in my, in my opinion i'm a bit biased 10 times cooler do the same thing in space exactly so and everything from from architecture to to psychology and neuroscience every all of our you know current uh, pharmaceutical industry uh, there's a big industry spinning up now for low earth orbit production of uh, pharmaceuticals and, and other materials so yeah if you it, it brings a whole lot more challenges but also gets a lot more uh, interesting in my view as well and potentially just really raises that cap on on human uh, innovation because all of a sudden we hit those kind of limits in what we can do and how we can manufacture things and you just really raise that bar 
when you can do it in microgravity, when you can do it on other planets, when you can gather resources from other planets as well. So yes, I, I'm not surprised that it's such a growing industry, uh, both professionally with the professional sphere, but also as a community in general, which is why I think NA has grown so much. Yeah, naturally. Although I will add to this that there are, there are complications in the sense that some people make objections along the lines of, well, if you actually live on the space colony, you know, it, it sounds romantic, except you, know, you, you get there and wherever you try to put it, everything's going to be sort of uh, hemmed in. You're not going to have wide open spaces as you used to on Earth, you know, the other health concerns and so on. So like, uh, you have to work a lot harder to get you know, maybe uh, the opening scenes of like a, a, a science fiction, maybe like uh, the Gundam animes, you know, like they, mm-hmm. their views of like space colonies, you know, they're 10 kilometers across and it's just fantastic. It's like exactly where you want to live as opposed to when, you know, it could easily go wrong uh, as opposed to say, you know, like a, the crammed in sort of space 1999 type thing, where it's like sort of, a, you know, a, right. a series of small uh, cylindrical rooms that you spend your entire life in, unless you're in a spacesuit. So it's like uh, if you if you have access to the potential uh, industrial growth that that you might be able to get if you harness, for instance, if you, if you know how to use the resources that are available in space, then you can have exactly the kinds of things that people were thinking about. Like a few, you know, like certainly a few decades ago, unfortunately, I think most people are sort of going away from this towards more of a cyberpunk type thing or its, its own iteration. I think the modern one, I call it Apple Punk, is like even it's got its own flavor. But the dreams that people used to have, they can be done, but only if you're, if you're very clever about how you go about doing them. So like, uh, yeah, I, I, I understand a lot of objections as well that people have to, to space colonization. I, that's really my field, like getting humans into space. You know, I, I much prefer humans over uh, unmanned vehicles and so on. I see them more as a, a, a route to getting people there. But then the, that objection I, I'm very mindful of. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone uh, in, in the aerospace industry can pretend that this initial expeditions to Mars uh, are not going to be anything but Oregon Trail Mars edition. Um, there's a huge amount of work, that obviously, that has to go into getting to a point where you have those kind of utopian civilizations that you know big figures talk about uh, and we read about in the books. It's definitely a hard journey, uh, which is why it was so interesting when we, as Nexus Aurora, participated in the Mars city-state competition, which was a million-person city-state. So we kind of get the assumption that all of the necessary infrastructure is kind of going to be there. Or we don't really have to worry about the limitations of logistics. And realistically, when you think about that, uh, that's what that looks like in the future, right? I always think of it in, in terms of Star Trek, uh, because I'm a massive nerd. But I think about in the far future, if we have our Star Trek, we have our Federation, and those are the technologies we have, you know, and we're here now, what are the steps in between that? And how do we get from here to there? And obviously, that's not, we don't just go, here today and tomorrow we're flying to other planets on on the USS Enterprise. But um, those initial steps, yeah, they're going to be hard. It's going to be our Apollo 11 style. You're in the size of a small car for four days on a trip or this, you know, in in this uh, respect, it would be much longer if you're talking about Mars, right? But yeah, so it definitely will be a very hard start, I think, Uh, but it is going fast. I think one of the biggest issues we face at the moment, and I've spoken with a lot of people in this generally tends to be the consensus is one of the hardest part about mars is going to be radiation on the trip there and back and there's a lot of innovation going on in that space at the moment but it's really hard to get around 
we don't really know what happens when we go that far out. No one really has a full idea because we've never sent biological materials out that far, especially not, uh, and then brought them back. So I, I wouldn't necessarily want to be the first person on that, you know, uh, Apollo 10 or 8 or whatever, you know, the one where they went around the moon and they didn't actually land. Mm. Um, I wouldn't want to be that person because you might get a little bit above your career requirements of radiation dosing, but we're going to get to a point in the far future where you don't even have to worry about that and you can step outside of your nice Martian atmosphere and look at the lack of Martian trees, but only have to wear, you know, uh, a basic pressure suit rather than entire EVA gear. Yes. Now, the, that's interesting, actually. Uh, when, you, when you started out there, you said uh, more or less start with the end game and work backwards, like in chess, right? That, that's the, the consensus uh, from Nexus World. Was that, was that what you were getting at? So, like, start, start from looking at Star Trek and then how do you get, what are the steps required? Yeah, exactly. And I think that we don't necessarily have a unified, here's how we want to necessarily approach it across NA. I, but I think I get the feeling that a lot of us come in with that kind of thoughts because a lot of the people that come in and want to work uh, or, or volunteer or want to start projects, a lot of them are moonshot ideas. And a lot of them are thinking, where is the future and can we work backwards from that? It's the, the classic, you know, um, back to the future, right? I think that movie was a big inspiration for a lot of new technology who people look at that technology and say, all right, how can we actually make that a reality? Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think we got automatic sliding doors from Star Trek. Really? I think that was the inspiration. They said, how, how can we make this a reality? And now it's, I mean, everywhere. In the case of the, uh, the sliding doors, of course, you, you have a few technologies required that are actually quite simple. You connect them together and the solution itself just sort of it follows naturally, right? I reckon space is kind of like that. And indeed, like, uh, what well, you look at anything, anything impressive that's been done, uh, say, like, uh, well, you know, you take, take a, a car or something like this. It's like, um, you know, uh, internal combustion. If you have, like, a, a, a reciprocating engine where different cylinders, you know, compress in, in diff like, at different times, and then uh, they, they, they tend to help each other along so that if one of them, you know, ends up going out of sync a little bit, it's not the end of the world because the other ones will help it out and they're all connected by crankshaft, etc. Uh, you have like a, a hundred small ideas which just sort of work. They, they're kind of practical. You, you know, a mechanic looks and is like, okay, yeah, that, that's going to work. That's going to be fine. And you're like, well, how about if we add this on, etc.? Okay, that's going to work. It's going to be fine. And then eventually you scale up and you have a full system that's basically like magic. You're like, how, how on earth, you know, you show this to someone from the era of horse-drawn carriages and so on, and they're like, what's going on? How's it, how's it able to get yeah. enormous amounts of power out of such a small space and so on? From fire, you say? Etc. Right. <laughs> I, I reckon it's similar. Yeah. It's a lot like the, um, those apps that back when App Store was kind of first introduced, where they, they, you, get, you start with the four elements, you know, I don't know if you ever played those, and you mix the element and you get something out of that, and then you can go from all the way from, you know, your four fire, earth, wind, water, all the way up to drunken man or zombie, <laughs> just mixing those elements over and over again in different combinations. But you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at uh, big bureaucratic organizations, uh, Boeing, Airbus, whatever, they start obviously small and out of, generally out of a garage if, if history is uh, correct. And then over time, you just get more and more complex things as you add, you know, regenerative cooling here and, and you add additional instrumentation there. And you just build out and then you end up 
having a large organization where one person is responsible for the sizing of the screws on the specific flange, you know, so it definitely gets there in in orders of uh, com- complication moving forward. That's another thing we also have to deal with uh, within the community itself is people come in with those big moonshot ideas or, or really far future thinking ideas and not necessarily all of them also then come in with a technical background. A lot of them do and a lot of people have a, a good intuition for it. Uh, and I, I take this moment to say that KSP has been one of the most useful tools I think I've seen for getting people familiar with like a good intuition of space. Mm-hmm. And that's what you know I'd like to focus on and what a lot of us focus on in that community is bridging that gap to say, all right, you know, break it down. Here's how we approach this from an engineering perspective. Break it down to its components like you were talking about and then just add those pieces together and then work your way up the chain until you have the end product that you want. Yes, I, absolutely. Anyone listening to this, like uh, wanting to get into sort of aerospace engineering and so on, like figuring, figuring out how to really get the stuff to work. If you don't have that as your background, I really recommend Cabal Space Program as well. It's a very, very nice game. Uh, it doesn't have everything, unfortunately, like um, Lagrange points that I'd really like to see. Uh, do you know if the second one's going to mm. have that in? I have no clue. I mean, I was I was following the second one for a couple of years, and I thought it was meant to come out a little bit of time ago, and it never ended up coming out um, with all the the studios changes that went on. I have been following it. I'm really looking forward to it, and I would love if they put right, it in. Yes. I can just imagine the amount of computing power that's going to be needed for some of those uh, for the, some of the mods that will be coming in to deal with Lagrange points in Kerbal Space Program. Yes, too. I mean it's already relatively computationally intensive, and they haven't added this kind of thing in. The thing is. From my perspective, I'm most interested in orbits around the Grange points and so on. I think that's where a lot of the, uh, the, the practical aspects of space, uh, space industrialization at least can come in, because it allows you to jump between planets in such a way that you don't have to give up a lot of your orbital energy in doing so. So you can cycle between them quite easily. So, and, and of course, they're, uh, they're an easy way to capture things in highly energetic orbits. So you take like an asteroid, for example. It, you, you see one that's sort of going towards Mars. And uh, if you just sort of jump on it and you're like, oh, excellent, great, I'll, I'll take this thing. You send a little mission there and you nudge it slightly so that it does a, a close approach to Mars. And then uh, you, you slow it down by the minimum amount possible, maybe just for you know, like a few tens of meters per second, or maybe hundreds of meters per second overall, you might be able to get it out into, a, say, a, an orbit about Lagrange points one or two which are very high energy mm. orbits in the sense that you know, it has to fly out like a million kilometers to get to one of these. Compare that to, say, a proper error capture, and you're looking at you know, many kilometers per second delta V, much of which, of course, is going to have to be done by uh, sort of error breaking, which might break the asteroid up, et cetera. So I, I reckon the, the, the Lagrange points are probably one of those bits, one of those components of a, uh, a full working industrial plan that just sort of works well like a, a practical thing which works in reality rather than say like a, I don't know, a, an antimatter drive type thing. And you're just like, but how on earth are we going to get that? <laughs> Where do we get that from? This would be, yeah. you know, like a, um, a, a crankshaft type thing. So uh, uh, something, something workable, uh, repeatable that, you know, like a, a, a person who actually has to go and make it work can, can look at it and say like, well, okay, fair enough. In, in, practice, in practice, that can be done. As opposed to you know more energy intensive uh, alternatives, I think there's a lot there actually. I think yeah, I, the halo orbits, which are the orbits around yes. these Lagrange points, all right, are 
the physics behind them is just wacky. I mean, if you've taken orbital dynamics, you're familiar with that, and then you look into Lagrange points, it's just oh, it's a complete headache. But it's one of those things that seems like it's probably going to be a key to some really useful parts of reliably and and sustainably moving missions to other planets, uh, to the moon, to Mars, and things like that. I, I completely agree. There's a lot of these small kind of niche areas that we can take advantage of the, of, of the these real body physics going on to leverage a lot of usefulness out that we haven't really considered from traditional missions. I know a large part of current Halo uh, usage is for space. Uh, isn't James W... Uh, the James Webb Telescope is that in the? Uh, I'm not sure. The point? It wouldn't surprise me. That's what I'd put it. I think it might be. I mean, don't quote me on that, other than being recorded. But obviously, but I think it's in the Lagrange point. It's a great um, place to put your telescopes, right? But there's got to be more. There's generally always extra opportunities, basically, to use there, right? And one of the things we found, especially when we've been talking to um, these large industry companies, we're talking to Nanoavionics, we're talking to Airbus, things like that. A large part of what we found as well is that if there's a commercial potential interest in there, even if it's very narrow, the you know you build it and they will come. Uh, a lot of these engineering companies, as long as the business is going to be there, they will tell the engineers to jump, and the engineers will say how fast in Delta V. You know, like it is absolutely something I think that will be taken advantage of and a huge potential, especially when you want you know that kind of regular. Uh, orbital period that you can see up there with the Lagrange points and Halo orbits. Yes, so a little background, um, please, please tell me I'm getting this right. It's actually surprisingly hard to find information about these things, but for Halo orbit, they, uh, it's around the, the, the actual, the, the size of your Halo. So basically it's like a um, sort of a, a, an ellipse, typically at an angle, whose center is at a Lagrange point. In particular, it's L1 or L2, they're the Halos, right? You can get Halos around these. So it's like an ellipse that circles around uh, L1 or L2, which are the points that are um, uh, between, uh, say, in the case of the Earth-Moon system, between the Earth and the Moon, and then uh, just in front of, but still in line with the Earth and Moon, respectively, so for L1 and L2. Uh, in, in their cases, the, the period does not really depend on uh, the, the size of your orbit. It's about the same no matter what the, <laughs> what the size of your halo is. It's always like... Um, uh, I I, I think it's about half the period, just a, just a little over half the period of uh, the 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 system about uh, like the say the Earth Moon system. It would be half the the Moon's period about the uh, about the Earth. I think that's right. So uh, in that case, it would be sort of around uh, twelve days uh, for the for the for the Halo. But that's really strange. It's completely different. And in any case, uh, I've probably got the, the damn facts wrong now. But Never mind. the The general idea is there, like it's it's radically different from, say, uh, elliptical orbits and so on that you get sort of regular elliptical orbits, say, around uh, you know if you're much closer into the Earth. But nonetheless, I think that's that's one of the keys uh, that people don't talk about too much. Maybe it's tacitly assumed in some science fiction, and there've been you know uh, sophisticated conversations that have happened in the past where uh, you know maybe people who actually work at NASA and so on have come to agreements over certain things like well of course yes that's the right way to do it but that's not typically publicly known and it might be that i've just seen it in tandem to what other people have seen and there may be many things like this but nonetheless it feels like uh, occasionally in some some science fiction maybe they this is sort of tacitly assumed that the you know um so if you if you have space colonies that say lagrange points four or five 
uh, they take asteroids in. That's their typical way of getting resources. They take asteroids in, they capture them there. How would you do that? Well, naturally, it's by close approach to, uh, close approach to the moon. And you, you pick out those asteroids, which just need the tiniest nudge. And then a, um, uh, like a, a gravitational assist from the moon to actually get to these sort of the grand points like L4, L5. Uh, in those cases, those would be uh, tadpole orbits. The, the, ana- the, the, the analogies for halo orbits about L4 or L5, which are points which trail and um, which, which follow behind and are directly in front of the, uh, the Earth, well, the, the, the moon as it goes around uh, the Earth, respectively, as an example, right? So there's, there's kind of there's tricks like this, orbital tricks that I think are unnecessary. That's a lot of uh, what I've been thinking about for trying, trying to get the, uh, trying to get a bridge to 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 cross the enormous gap between you know the Starship Enterprise and uh, <laughs> going to Mars in a tuna can <laughs> with uh, with 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 almost no backups in case you know the air stops being purified in the next ten minutes or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of any other uh, other major major innovations and things like that uh, that you've you've come across uh, or that that interest you like from your your background with the Nexus Aurora? Yeah, I mean. Working within Exosora has been a very interesting opportunity because if you've ever spoken to uh, kids about what they think of the future and what they want to invent, they are the most creative, you know, group of people. Because I think there's there's kind of that that uh, inverse correlation between the amount of knowledge they have and then the ideas that they can produce. So they obviously very young, so they have very little technical knowledge, but have the sky the limit uh, or is in the limit ideas and it. As you kind of come down and you increase on uh, inversely as you get older and the high schoolers and college students are right on the sweet spot because they have enough technical knowledge that they're not necessarily pitching you freeze rays but they are pitching you ideas that will take a lot of uh, uh, technical reach but one of the things that we've been specifically working on as, as one of our flagship projects has been uh, a rover a, which is meant to be de- deployed rapidly and very cheaply produced as a way of doing advanced mission planning. Uh, so you, you basically can send a swarm of these rovers to a target mission area, uh, so let's say on Mars, and just deploy them and they'll all go out and they'll just do very quick samples and they're highly redundant because there's a whole swarm of them, right? And one of the things that we came out of this with in doing our research was that there has been a huge amount of potential, potential waste really in the design of these landers and rovers. We were trying to design this to be as modular as possible to fit different mission needs. And we kind of came to the question, why isn't that a regular uh, thing, right? So the the introduction of the CubeSat form factor absolutely revolutionized access to low Earth orbit. You know, there's over 2,000 uh, CubeSats that have been launched and, and tons of these nanosats as well. And everyone can launch them now. They're relatively cheap. I, I say everyone with an asterisk there, obviously, it requires some resources and connections but researchers phd students in private institutions and groups you know even nexus aurora has the ability to be able to launch um on on board or co-manifest with these cubesats right and so we're now moving away as well from leo as human humanity we're clearly moving on to these artemis missions fingers crossed uh between the moon between mars and, and beyond People are going to want to and be able to capitalize best on the resources that are available there if they're able to find out what resources there are and they're kind of able to get their robotic hands on the boots on the ground, if you will. And so we're now looking at 
standardization should be applied to more than just CubeSats, right? What if you could develop a payload and you can just plug it straight onto your curiosity style bus that is standardized so it's cheap and then you can send it out to the moon and mars but you're not paying billions of dollars for bespoke payloads that put all your eggs in one basket that if that landing you know if that sky crane goes wrong that's game over and it's a several year round trip yes okay yeah yeah standardization that's a good point uh and the the cubesat thing as well this is the major innovation it seems in the last few years that we've really had the one part of modern technology in the 21st century that really works would be uh, software in particular put towards organization and uh, innovations within that sphere, right? That, that's very new and that's really revolutionized a lot of how everything gets done. So, you know, like uh, amongst all, well, for science, technology, but in particular for economics and so on, this is the part that's really had a lot of innovation and a lot of change. Whereas, you know, like say aircraft engines are basically the same as they've been for like the last 50 years. Not longer, right? Uh, discounting, you know, like technically, you have we do have uh, good uh, good ramjet engines and so on, but they're more for like cruise missiles and so on. You wouldn't make a ramjet, like certainly not pure ramjet, for you know, like uh, common civilian applications, right? So in many senses, like it's even older than that. So uh, yeah, like the the standardization thing that that does seem like it has the potential to open stuff up. I, I I understand the uh, maybe you know you 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 say this to the NASA engineers you know what have you been doing I I have the I have a nice little book here by the way I'm uh, holding up to my camera now <laughs> oh it's oh it's reflected of course the, I have the um, the owner's workshop manual for the Na the uh, the NASA Mars rovers it's really quite a nice read actually there's a whole bunch of stuff here uh, basically it's just the history of rover design and so on uh, it's very bespoke for the most part. They have a lot of innovations that are added into each new iteration. And it's my tendency as well. This is what I would end up doing, having a completely new set of ideas every time I send something up. Because I'm like, well, the old structure, you know, like um, the old structure for the rovers, that's terrible. We're never going to do that again. Trust me, this new one is the way to go. And I, I wouldn't accept any standard at all. The cost of which and the problem, the principal problem that comes along with this is the added expense that comes with not having commercial standards that you can apply over and over again. So that even if, even if the standards aren't perfect, it's better to have some than none. I, that's very hard for someone like me to accept. I think if you were to ask perhaps the people responsible, and I note that I have not done, but if you are someone responsible at NASA for the design of, you know, like the Curiosity rover or something, please jump on this podcast. Drop me an email, okay? <laughs> I'm happy to have you on, but to, to, to uh, unfairly put words in your mouth, I'm sure that you would probably, to, you know, if you were to be defending the, um, the, the, the tendency towards that sort of bespoke nature that, um, that NASA goes with, with, its, with a lot of its engineering designs and decisions, uh, I, I, can, I can follow along with that because that's exactly what I would do. But then at the, at the, uh, at the other end of things, like the, the, the SpaceX approach and the approach that I think of many rocket companies who clearly are, are in one way or another, uh, copying from that initial innovation from from SpaceX within aerospace, at least you know, standardize a uh, uh, standardize your systems, use off the shelf components whenever you can. That's how you get to space cheaply. Uh, and we have things like Electron and so on, which are aiming to set up their own version of this for a different aspect of the space launch market. Once we have something like this going for rovers and so on, I can see that obviously really cutting down the price because we're looking at. For some of these, you know, the, the price tag for a rover mission can be 
on the order of a billion dollars in some cases, right? Which is absurdly high. There's no way you could possibly afford to do that uh, if you're industrially serious. If you're just like, well, we need to figure out where to put uh, a new, a, you know, a new Martian civilization. Uh, how do we do that? You can't do that a thousand times over if it's costing you a billion dollars a shot. So that this, I think, that's a good point. Uh, this is probably a great source of innovation, even though it's counterintuitive from a scientist perspective. My tendency would be to look at that and be like, yeah, but there's no, there's no engineering innovation there. Clearly, in reality, this massively cuts down the price when you're actually going to do it. And I mean, there's a whole value chain here, right? So uh, because I've spent long enough working with people to know, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this as well, and most people are, that they're just it's good, all good and well to have uh, an engineering reason to make it standard, but there's also got to be an economic reason. And generally, when you see standards, people will shy away from that because they say, well, they can't necessarily make money if everyone's doing the exact same thing. But there's a whole value chain here, and that's what the CubeSat structure has really shown to us, right? There's a whole set of businesses like NanoRacks that so or, or NanoAvionics even that either build buses or they solely work around the deployment there. So it doesn't even have to be that each rover has to be bespoke. You can have your you know, your, your flagship bus, you know, your small bus, your large bus, your, your huge bus, that is just a different bespoke rover from a specific company with a standard payload interface, you know, so they can have their own lineup. It, it becomes a lot like uh, terrestrial cars, right? You can go with your Ford and they have their trucks and they have their SUVs and they have their sedans, and you can just pick the one you want to slot in whatever payload you need to, right? So there's a whole value chain here from the design of the, the, the specific rovers up to the interfaces that you can see standardization just between in the links between those just they should be a standardized interface for example to plug in your payloads to provide a certain amount of power or data bus and that is not really going to cost anyone anything except it opens up a huge potential new market as well and so we've spoken with engineers at, at jpl recently and i've got to say Absolutely can't dis uh, disparage JPL or NASA for developing bespoke rovers like they did because obviously it worked and they, they were necessary for the missions. But there's an inflection point, right, where you go from your initial, everything is very developed very expensively and, and are one-offs to we are now in mass production. This is available for everybody. And so we've spoken to those engineers at, at NASA, JPL, and at MDA who makes the uh, Canadarm that where are you seeing this kind of interface or desire for some sort of standardization to go beyond CubeSats? And yeah, the, the, the answer is that they see this in the future and they're either actively working for it or they're looking for that standard to be introduced or enforced by you know NASA or another entity, the governing entity like that. So it seems like that is coming in, in the near future. We should see, which is really exciting, because now you can send your own little payloads to the moon and, and do mineral analysis or spectroscopy. And so, you know, it's, that is good to see as well. And it, it helps us as an organization because it shows, shows that we're looking in the right direction that when we come together with all these crazy ideas, a lot of them, as you refine them, really have uh, both market and, and engineering technical appeal. Because these engineers are looking to it and they're saying, yeah, that, that sounds good to us. And we're looking forward to that as well. Especially, it's just really cool to be able to talk to NASA and JPL engineers yeah, in Yeah, definitely. Again, if you are a NASA or JPL <laughs> uh, engineer listening to this podcast, 
uh feel free to jump on you know for any episode you like <laughs> yeah yeah drop us a line uh, right yes so uh that that kind of standardization i've seen a lot of that with uh, not just not just sam but also uh farm these are the 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 two main uh rover type projects that we have going at next to aurora at the moment uh you're you're heavily involved with farm as well i think yeah, so they were both, um, the farm project is, is led by Sam, one of our other uh, degreed engineers. Uh, both of those projects are for the Mars Desert Research Station, which is the Mars Society's analog research station in Utah. Um, following the end of the Mars Society contest, they asked us to develop these two projects for deployment at their analog station uh, and potentially at a couple of other analog stations, which we're currently sourcing. So, hey, also, if you aside from being a nasa engineer if you happen to run a human analog station in any place on the planet definitely also drop us a line yeah absolutely uh, but yeah so the farm project is a uh open source design for uh, automating farming if you've ever seen uh things like FarmBot, or it's effectively a 3d printer that it, it does planting of seeds it measures all of the necessary ambient conditions and then is able to provide an autonomous harvest um, and that project has also kind of morphed into uh, not just food production, but food processing, which is a large part of the market or what we need for that future technology. When you're looking at, you know, what we what do we need to live on Mars? We need food, food production, but we also need food processing to take your raw ingredients and, you know, pop an egg and two carrots in the top and out comes a pizza at the bottom, right? Or <laughs> not a very good tasting pizza in that case, but... Kind of, so that's the general gist of you know the uh, what those two projects are aiming to do. Right. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that well, not only is there a whole bunch of technical innovation required to actually set that up, but uh, in terms of commercial innovation with the uh, with the standard set up, uh, both of these are applications where you need potentially thousands of small and very cheap systems that are rugged and reliable to operate continuously for long periods of time on the Martian surface. So getting either of those right can have like a massive impact on uh, how, how we're going to be able to set up a civilization when eventually this becomes a thing that we are able to do. I'm hoping for SpaceX really to, uh, to give us some, uh, some cheap launches perhaps to Mars and then you know, everything can go from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when you're thinking about that, right, it helps to have as many eyes on the project as possible. And so... We are a large, you know, nonprofit community. We get thousands of eyes, and then we, if we publish papers, especially when we do it via the IAF, you get thousands more, and it all helps to basically help create a reliable design that is going to hold up and can be rapidly deployed and, and cheaply produced. Because that is going to be the name of the game for a lot of everything that goes there. It needs to be light and it needs to be cheap. Um, although. Uh, with the caveat that with the introduction of you know massive lifter craft like uh, starship if successful a lot of that mass goes that mass issue goes away but you obviously still want to try and be as efficient as possible right of course yeah uh, i've seen well when i uh <laughs> when i made my own uh mars society uh million person mars mars uh, colony uh contest entry in parallel to what next world was doing at the time and the, Hopefully, when the next one comes along, you know, I'll be able to join in with uh, with Nexus Aurora. I wasn't a member at that time. That we're going back several years now. Uh, I I used as a standard something like five hundred dollars per kilogram. I think that in the uh, in the in, in the competition, this was what was assumed as a price for sending material to uh, to the Martian surface. 
I think being practical is probably going to be more like a thousand dollars per kilogram. <laughs> uh, you know, at least for the for the foreseeable future, which is really high. <laughs> so you know, you you want to push that down as much as possible. But at least it's not a million dollars per kilogram. At a thousand dollars per kilogram, you can probably start to think about getting getting a reasonable, uh, you know, using off the shelf components and you know cheaper alloys and things like this. You know, you cast like magnesium alloy, and then you know it's the easiest thing to machine. So you just sort of uh, put together simple frames and things like that, and you don't have to worry about crazy things like aluminium lithium alloys with like I don't know a, a carbon fiber reinforcement or something like this, which NASA works with all the time, but which cost enormous amounts, uh, you know, per per kilogram, and to actually manufacture in the first place. So just having yeah. that shift, it means we can now go to much, much simpler designs uh, and, uh, you know, uh, getting getting down to, say, you know, uh, 80 or 90 percent of uh, the, the the lightest you could possibly be, you know, by the sort of the, the, the Pareto principle, uh, just switching alloys to cheaper stuff of, with which many more people have experience. It's sufficient to save, you know, the vast majority of the the cost that would otherwise go into it, right? Yeah, it's all about that inflection point, right? It's where we can maybe hit the point where we can say we don't have to specialize, we don't have to make bespoke systems. Obviously, there's improvements and efficiency gains to be made. And you look at aircraft today; that's always going to be a goal. But in general, we don't want to have to make super expensive, you know, uh, one-off items just to be able to meet certain needs. And I think we were definitely around the same um, cost looking at basis when we also did our, our submission for the Mars City State Competition. Yeah, it, it's just really about saying, do we need to develop these super alloys that we're going to use on wheels if we can just make a standard that is easily and cheaply reduced that will work? And can we do it in a way that's sustainable. So we might be able to, with depending on the introduction of Starship, if that's going to be the kind of the maiden voyage vehicle, if you will, we may be able to skip that initial stage of having to develop our specialized lunar landers and our specialized lunar you know, uh, rovers because we'll already not have to worry about the massive weight savings that we're going to need to have if we were sending it on something like Orion or, or another type of craft. Yes. I mean, if it's just... Uh, you you have your Starship land, and it brings stuff to Mars. You know, at least relatively cheaply. Certainly cheaply, cheaply compared to any any other viable option that's ever been around. Uh, and there's a, a little crane bit that comes out the side, as, as has been shown in uh, in images. You can easily find these online. Uh, and your 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 uh, you know crates of um, of your 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 rovers or otherwise payload that you want to get on site are just sort of taken out uh, with the crane and lowered carefully to the ground. Uh, now this this takes away so many so many problems that otherwise you would have to deal with if you had to figure all of that out every time. So yeah, that, I can see that standard really helping out there. And then you know with SpaceX Starship as the standard, uh, adapting everything to that. Yeah, seems like an excellent idea. Yeah, you skip straight from trying to deliver in your Fiat Five Hundred to delivering in a full eighteen wheeler, you know, semi truck lorry. It absolutely would be a game changer if that's how we initially do. So that gives me a good question. Do you think there's a lot of credit to the the space elevator idea? Because every time I look at it, it just looks so not real 
though it's hard to imagine too many other ways to actually go about doing that. I I have a I have a very strange relationship with space elevators. I uh, I I I don't I don't like I don't like the way it dresses when it goes out. There's so much more to it than meets the eye. You know, uh, it could it could be such yeah. a great thing, but you know, as it as it imagines itself at the moment, it's just a tragedy. So I I really hate the idea of space elevators as they're typically described, but uh, a few with a few alterations, I think they are spectacularly good. Basically, I'd never have a space elevator that goes all the way down to a planet. I wouldn't use it as a primary launch system. Uh, but picture picture the the following. So instead of so uh, to to summarize the space elevator concept, which I'm I'm sure basically everyone's uh, who's listening to this is already aware. Uh, the general idea is you you take a giant cable from say uh, well geosynchronous orbit so that it's the, the cable is not moving with respect to the surface of whatever planet you're doing this with the cable goes all the way down uh it connects up to like a, a you know a a station or platform on an ocean if you have to move it for um for you know uh, practical reasons but only move it a little bit uh it sits on this little station and if you, you uh, because the top of it is actually in a stable orbit if you put anything on the other side of it, or otherwise you capture an asteroid or something like this, you can have it sit there stably for very long periods and even send things up the cable. And the fact that the cable is pulled down towards the, uh, the planet doesn't matter that much because uh, there's, a, there's an opposite pull that you get from uh, centrifugal effects of having material on the other, the other side of geosynchronous orbit. So that you know, it's relatively stable, you can send things up. And now just climbing up a cable doesn't require any rocket fuel at all or, you know, anything particularly complicated. You just have like a little, a little climber, you send it electricity by some means, you know, microwaves are perfectly fine for this. Uh, you can very efficiently send microwaves even over long distances, although maybe not that long. That's the thing. Uh, several thousand kilometers for microwaves is a bit of a problem, maybe lasers. Never mind, right? You, you send electricity up somehow. You even have solar cells on the side because it doesn't take much to climb. And you can send stuff up. The trouble is, in the case of the Earth, even if you could make such a thing, uh, and it requires like carbon nanotubes, which are just impossibly hard to manufacture at that sort of scale and the kinds of lengths that you need, so the the, the stress on the cable is going to be absolutely absurd. Uh, you you climb up with your with your climbers and so on. You discover that the trip is going to take something like three days, as currently envisaged. And you know you need you even with carbon nanotubes and so on, you're looking at uh, you know the at least the better part of like 10,000 tons, you're going to be taking up like one ton at a time or something along these lines. So, you know, like 300 tons a year for 10,000 tons of the most expensive material known to man, discounting, of course, that you have to repair it and so on, uh, you know, from uh, uh, wear and tear from micrometeorites. I, I, don't, I don't really like them for that purpose. I think that's better served by rockets or by nuclear pulse propulsion uh, from a technical perspective, ignoring the political problems that come with nuclear pulse propulsion, I'm always going to be a proponent of nuclear pulse propulsion, except that they'll never let us do it. If they let us do it, that's the best way to get to space. But they never will. So, get, fair enough. I, you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a cra crazy scientist type guy. I, I don't know how the world works and so on. <laughs> so I'll leave that one out. But like um, uh, rockets, are, you know, like rockets are probably the best way of going up. But picture the following, okay? Say you have instead uh, a, a pair of cables uh, stuck together at a central hub that are, well, actually two pairs of cables stuck together each at a central hub uh, that spin against each other, spin up to speed, right? 
so that basically it's just you know more or less two two cables with a hub in the center of them uh spinning around in opposite directions in space if you first of all uh if you want to construct things you know have have a place to uh put spaceships together and so on uh the the cables if there's if they have a a very a very long um uh, if they if they're long cables uh then the center and if they're massive cables as well uh the center can be quite stable and uh they don't need to spin around that fast in order to generate enough centrifugal force to really uh pull themselves taut so that you can use them as sort of a solid platform which you can move stuff around on and uh you know like have say uh cargo uh move from place to place you know you need to pick up one half of a bulkhead or something like that and move it to the right place so you can weld it in for like a your giant new starship thing so you're making the starship enterprise if the starship enterprise spins along with it but the cable's like 100 kilometers long which is nothing compared to so um uh for for an earth-based space elevator it's more like 40,000 kilometers right so 100 kilometers is nothing by comparison you could easily do that with say uh, basalt fiber like which is extremely cheap where in the same way that car- uh, carbon nanotubes are extremely expensive with a basalt fiber cable type thing, you can have uh, runners go along it and feel basically no centrifugal uh, gravity effects, like artificial gravity effects, if they're very close to the middle. So that if you have, say, a ship that's 200 meters wide, but the cable is 100 kilometers long, then you, you're, you're basically in zero gravity at the middle, even though everything is very gently spinning. But you have these cables which are sort of fixed in place that you can use as a reference point to move things around and move things around without rocket fuel. In addition, if you you put something together, uh, maybe maybe it's like you're you're, you're building a starship and and uh, and so on. But in addition, you're you're also you know you have like a big uh, industrial complex. You're also making you know like trade goods and things like that, and you want to launch them off. If you only need something like say 800 meters per second delta v, which if you were starting from say a Martian moon is amply sufficient for the first part of your journey, right? Uh, then you you could send that climbing up the side of uh, well cl- climbing up along one of the cable ends. So if you have got two cables coming out of a central hub that are each 100 kilometers long, you send one up the cable, and if you arrange it so that the uh, the top of the cable is traveling at about a kilometer per second, then you're fine. You just you get to the top, and then at the right point when the uh, the cable's rotating, you wait for the just the right second, and you let go of the cable. And you fly off with, say, 100 kilometers, excuse me, no, some, something on the order of one kilometer per second. That's about all you can do with this, right? Uh, without it getting difficult. Uh, uh, one kilometer per second delta V can send you careening off into, uh, you know, like a collection point, say it's, uh, well, I envisage this coming, you know, with the, with the Martian moons, getting stuff to Lagrange points one or two. So uh, Sun, Mars, Lagrange points one or two. You, you send stuff up uh, from, from the Martian moons this way, and you don't need any rocket fuel at all. In fact, to get the uh, the cables back up to speed again, you just simply torque them against each other, which requires almost no electricity and certainly no propellant. So that you you could you can imagine a system like that being uh, really simple and yet giving enormous potential for the movement of large amounts of commodities, and you get a nice uh, sort of stable platform in the center around which you know you could base like a an entire effectively zero g manufacturing system, uh, but which doesn't have the problems that come with, say, a scaffolding uh, type thing. You know, you look at sort of images online for like uh, you know uh, 
giant sort of sci-fi uh, construction yard thing, say if you're making like a space colony, and they've got scaffolding everywhere. In that case, any stresses they experience, say, you know, you have to move like a, a, a bulkhead or something that's going to be part of the colony, you have to move it out so you can weld it into place. Uh, if, it's, if it's stabilized for compression, now you have to deal with buckling and things like that. It's much, much harder to build compressive elements. Whereas if you have a, a cable that's just taut because it's spinning, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to have any uh, compressive strength at all. If you have it permanently taut, you can move along it without, without, having any, um, uh, w- without it needing to have any stiffness whatsoever. Stiffness is, uh, well, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm only, uh, like, I'm a physicist, I'm, I'm not a mechanical engineer, so you'll forgive me here, but <laughs> as, as I understand it, uh, generally speaking, stiffness is the tricky thing to design for within aerospace or mechanical engineering or structural engineering in general. And, you know, if you just have, a, a, like, a, a cable that's in permanently uh, tensile stress and tensile stress alone, it's much, much more forgiving than if you have to use compression to sustain everything. So in that sense, I really like space elevators, but it's not the space elevator that you hear about, you know, like in, uh, in typical uh, science fiction or, or people typically talking about them as a method for getting stuff off of a planet. I much prefer them in free space, if that makes any sense. Now, what do you think of this as, um, as a, a, different, a different rendition? I think whenever I've thought about this, it's always an exercise in the, like this to me is the most moonshot of moonshots in terms of um, the, the, the feasibility of designing something like this and the feasibility of actually making it work, right? And there's a lot of, I agree with you, I think a lot of the way we have perceived it or, or set it up is kind of misleading in how it, would, how it would work and all of the technical challenges that go into it. But yeah, theoretically, you can, it would be an amazing opportunity to be able to just effectively climb up this tower and then look, you're already at orbital or greater than orbital velocities. Uh, and then, you know, you can use that to capitalize into moving into those Lagrange points, anything like that is a fantastic opportunity. The ability to get into uh, microgravity environments is without having to use rocket fuels completely circumvents all of the issues with the rocket equation. Um, to Salkovsky's great demise, but it's a potentially great opportunity. But I struggled mostly just to see how such a thing is deployed, right? So uh, the, it, for me, that conjures images of you get the Falcon 9 or you get the, the, any of the Aryan space rockets under the pad and you just kind of hook on a, a, a leash to them and you just say launch and then they launch straight up and you just watch this, you know, like a cartoon, the anchor unfurling as the, the coil just uncurls as the rocket goes up. And then, bam, you're in orbit and you have your, your initial deployment there, right? I don't know. That's one of the things I struggle with is how do you deploy such a thing? You know, is there, I haven't looked into this enough to know if those types of things have been explored. You, you probably would. Uh, if, if those, you know, how, how have they looked at that? How have they solved that problem in terms of manufacturing something like this? So everything I've heard uh, discussing exactly this issue has been based around the idea that you bring a, a big coiled up cable up to uh, geosynchronous orbit, and then usually, usually they say uh, you 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 take one end of it and you send it earthwards, and at the same time take the other end and send it out the other way, so that they're both pushed away from each other, and then the center of mass of your system is still geosynchronous orbit. You you, you tune it out so that uh, you're not shifting the center of mass earthward. In which case, 
well, I mean, the 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 typical equations that you need to track uh, orbits and calculate how orbits work, they they work with the uh, the center of mass of a uh, an object that's in an orbit. So you 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 take everything from its center of mass. You assume that the the object's basically just an infinitely small particle uh, with whatever mass it has, and then you can you can calculate you know what kind of orbit that it that it finds itself in. Well, if you have an extended structure whose scale is on the order of the scale of its own orbit, it's very possible to change the position of its center of mass. So say if you, you send like a, a thousand kilometers of cable earthward uh, and you don't do anything the other end, now you, know, you, might, you might end up sort of dragging yourself out of the orbit you want to be in, which is no good. So what I tend to say is you, you, you send out two identical cables, or, or well, you know, like accounting for... Accounting for um, uh, uh, you know, second order corrections and so on. Maybe they're not exactly identical, right? But uh, two cables right. whose purpose is when you, you send them out either way and overall it keeps the orbit stable and you very gently send it earthward. Now, of course, uh, if you need 10,000 tons for your cable or something on that order, okay, it depends on exactly how much you intend to lift with it and so on, then that can't be brought up by a SpaceX Starship. And now, you know, uh, before anyone kills me for this, uh, I will just calmly add. As a side note, that if even if it was a million tons, you could casually bring that up with a single launch of a nuclear pulse propulsion system, you know, like uh, Project Orion. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, like I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you could. Yeah. <laughs> if there's any government entities, you know, interested in why we can't do nuclear launch, also drop us a line. We'd love to talk yes. to you. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, you know, um, the. Please don't have me assassinated or something like that. But <laughs> I, I am a massive proponent of exactly this technology, and it's not not so bad for the Earth, as they say. Uh, but you know, it's that that aside. Yes, you could easily send up the the mass of several space elevators at a time if you had access to this. But assuming then that we don't, uh, there is no rocket design currently contemplated, at least not contemplated seriously, that would be capable of bringing up. You know, many thousands of tons of uh, elevator at a time. So the general idea is you extend it out. You have a very, very thin elevator that goes to the surface of the Earth, or at the very least, you know, like uh, quite close to it. So even if you're sort of uh, uh, at sort of Leo altitudes, actually probably go a little bit beyond that if you were not going to go all the way, uh, probably that's still fine because uh, now, now you don't have any air resistance or anything like that. But whatever you, you, uh, you extend your cables out, and then you send another shipment and you, uh, you get another cable and you run that along and sort of uh, like making a rope out of many uh, smaller threads, you connect them together each time. Right. So I'm like, well, maybe, but you see, they, uh, they, the, the way that you stick your composite material, and really that's what this cable would end up being, it's more like a ribbon. If you have it as a cable, it's very easy to get it uh, tangled up. But with a ribbon, it's much harder for the uh, uh, if it's got if it's got significant widths to it. Now I can resist uh, bending, right? In a way that say like a you know a um, a, a piece of thread or something like that will just tangle itself up. You know, you, you pick it up and it's almost tangled itself, <laughs> right? When when you if you ever you know done like sewing or something like that in school or whatever, uh, you pick a piece of thread up or something, it, it naturally tries to tangle itself. If it's forty thousand kilometers long, is you'd never you'd never be able to get away with it. Right, it would, it'd just be a complete mess almost the second that you deploy it. So you you really want a ribbon type thing. Uh, but you know it, the strength of the ribbon is highly dependent upon the binding between 
different lengths of cable within the ribbon. Like uh, this is the the trouble with all composite materials. In principle, if you have forty thousand kilometers of completely uninterrupted carbon nanotube, maybe you're fine. But this is extremely hard to do. No one has ever done anything close to that. So really, what if you're getting carbon nanotubes, you can grow them to be. I can't remember what the uh, the world record is for length of carbon nanotube now. Uh, but you know, it's on the order of. I think it's it's much less than a meter. I you know someone's going to jump in with that, <laughs> but it's not forty thousand kilometers. Okay, <laughs> right. So less than a meter, right? You you have you have to have a whole bunch of these things sort of stuck together, and the way that you stick them together is then the weakest point. So you can have you can imagine having an enormous structure composed of uh you know a whole bunch of very very strong carbon nanotubes, but if the way that they're stuck together is not actually sufficient. Then, like when it fails, you could have all the carbon nanotubes being completely fine, and your space elevator breaking into many pieces at the same time, much like much like a pane of glass, actually. So the the bonding between the uh, well, your atoms in, in in a pane of glass is actually much much stronger, say, than the bonding between uh, ions in in steel, right? So, uh, say it's most metal, I don't know actually by definition, a metal is an electron gas, right? Uh, electron plasma. The, where electrons are free to jump around between uh, sort of ionized uh, central metal atoms, and then that the dance of random electrons just jumping all over the place is what holds a metal together. Well, this, the bonding in, say, a pane of glass is much, much stronger. But you make a sword out of it and you whack something and discover that the glass can, the vast majority of the bonding in the glass can be completely good, and yet the glass can still fall apart. Like very rapidly and very easily, it has a very low toughness, even though the the bonding between individual atoms there is much much stronger. And so, I I'm skeptical that just because you can get one carbon nanotube or some small number of them in a very small uh, experimental apparatus to sustain absurdly high tensile stresses in a lab under controlled conditions, I'm skeptical that you can scale up, or certainly that we can scale up. You know, humanity at the moment can scale up from that to a, a long tapering cable that's able to withstand those kinds of forces. That, that's my reservation. So, you know, I, I'm not a big fan. Uh, again, that probably sounds quite mean. If you are a big fan of space elevators and so on, um, feel free to correct me. I, by all means, like, uh, you know, I, I, I get stuff wrong all the time. It's only natural. And if there is some aspect to this that I'm not seeing, uh, please, you know, please, uh, please drop us a line. But that, yeah, basically, I don't, I don't tend to like them for that purpose. In free space, though, I'm their biggest fan. But they're, they're radically different. Like, 100 kilometers long, and it's in free space doing its own thing, is just uh, night and day compared to, say, 40,000 kilometers long and working as an Earth launch system, basically. Yeah. It's almost like it would be maybe more efficient to develop some sort of nuclear-powered propulsion devices that, you know, were maybe commercially available or some anything like that, maybe, potentially. Right. I'll also add that uh, a nice little tidbit of information is the Mars moons are really, really small. So Deimos, the smaller of the two of the Mars moons, you could, I mean, you'd have to maybe be an Olympic athlete, but you can effectively jump into orbit on, on that moon. It really takes absolutely no, it's like something on the order of 5.6 meters a second to deorbit yourself uh, and accidentally, well, either accidentally deorbit yourself or escape the moon's velocity and j jump into Mars orbit. It is not a high gravity moon. So 
you kind of have to be careful with that one uh, using it anything to do with that at all. Although it's a great staging ground, obviously for Mars, but it is it is miniature. Oh, well, actually, I I don't see I don't see that there's any uh, any practical problem there. So certainly you could jump away from say Phobos or otherwise. If you were talking about Demos, right? That's e- that's e- you you may struggle to you know run and jump off uh, Phobos. I think that's close to ten meters per second. I I don't know. I only remember things approximately in my in my brain, right? Engineer, I, like, I think like right. an engineer, even though I'm trained like a physicist. So I, I'm happy if I'm with, <laughs> if I'm sort of order of magnitude, yeah. right? So with Phobos, you yes, indeed, you could probably jump off. Certainly, you know, if you're if you're trained, you could probably throw a, a cricket ball off it or something like this. You jump out into, uh, well, you jump away from it, and you reach its escape velocity. You do not fly off into free space. You you end up in an orbit very similar to uh, to Deimos's orbit around Mars, probably slightly higher up because you've increased your uh, your velocity. So you you end up in a slightly more elliptical orbit, but it's basically the same as Deimos's orbit. So you don't you don't get lost, so to speak. It's it's kind of like right. I like to think of the Martian moons as just very large mountain type spaceships, which are full. We think we think full of soil that once existed on the Martian surface, which means soil that's been that's had billions of years of water and erosion and volcanic processes working on it so maybe you get uh you, even if you're just getting say the sorts of spectrums of uh, uh material components that you get from the martian surface they're still really nice you get stuff like manganese there like manganese well that's wonderful to me that is a a very exotic element we use it on earth all the time it's a completely casual thing for uh, adding to steel and so on but if you are used to looking at asteroids as a place to mine stuff, uh, something like manganese is just unheard of. Like reasonable amounts of chlorine in the form of perchlorates and so on. If that's actually locked up there, no one knows. No one's actually sent a mission there, unfortunately. I, I would really like to see something from someone going to the Martian moon to tell me what's there, right? Anything. Seriously. Uh, they're very interesting. They're in circular orbits and you know, there's, a, there's a hole on one side of Mars that's so big that the biggest chain of volcanoes in the solar system ended up, when the hole was made, being formed on the other side of Mars as a consequence of the collision. <laughs> so uh, that's pro- and you have cir- very highly circular orbits and spectra, which uh, well, they're complicated. We'll talk about that in a minute, maybe, but they look relatively similar to the Martian surface. That's that's a that's a pretty uh, that's pretty suggestive, right? So almost certainly. Phobos and Demos were formed by massive impacts in Mars's ancient past. Well, if that's if that's the case, like they're full of useful stuff, and it's in free space, it's not bound to a planet, so you can just pick it up and go. Again, their their uh, escape velocities are basically nothing. So yeah. it's it's just sitting there. It's like a, a an enormous sort of uh, 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 material stock where you can just you can make stuff. And what's great as well, there's yeah. there's carbon as well on the outside. So it we think it floated in. As little bits of dust from the asteroid belt, uh, and it's probably very, very thin. You know, only like a meter or two thick over the uh, over the tops of them. But there's carbonaceous material there too, which is great for rocket fuel. It's like your your free sample of Mars, right? You get to go. You don't have to deal with the atmosphere or anything. You just get to go, stop, pick up some samples, leave. Very small difference in time. Yes, exactly. Like, that is the easiest way to get a sample return from Mars. Don't get a sample return from Mars. You just get it from the moon. <laughs> What's great is you can yeah. probably even do this on the way to Mars. I think about this too, right? If you slow down for error braking, 
uh, in close approach with Mars, but not to the point where you actually get full error captures in, or like error capturing the planet, still be in Martian orbit. You slow down, say, from interplanetary uh, velocities, which when you get close to Mars, equates to yeah, a little bit over five kilometers per second. You slow down instead to, oh, what is it? Four and a bit kilometers per second, I think it is. Then you can fly out to Phobos's orbit or uh, Deimos's orbit and you know, send out a small mission there to collect samples and so on. Whilst you, your, your main ship just flies back in in an ellipse and then the next pass with Mars slows down all the way and then lands on the Martian surface as it intended in the first place. So you could just stop off at the Martian moons and drop like a little probe without it costing you any extra fuel and only a couple extra hours of mission time. So, like, you know, uh, please, anyone who's considering going to Mars, take this into consideration. Just a little, just a little probe for me so I can see what's on these things, right? A little sidetrack, yeah. Uh, we actually, I, so I w- w- worked a little bit on a project uh, like this a couple of years ago on a, uh, this was handed out as, uh, from the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA, as part of what they generally try to explore on behalf of NASA, right? So NASA takes a very incremental approach now to uh, exploration, uh, you know, bit by bit. And so they see the Mars moons as staging grounds for Mars missions. And so you're in luck, you'll most likely see some Mars sample return missions from those moons, uh, likely before we actually see one from the Martian surface, looking at how things are going. But you can do a manned mission even to both of those um, from a uh, like a collector style vehicle, basically your mothership, you can send uh, this exploration vehicle ahead of time. You can bring out your astronauts to Mars in a high Martian orbit. You can do a thirty day excursion to both moons, get tons of I think something like a hundred kilo- kilograms of material from both moons, and then return and depart. And that's all with a less than thirty day mission. It's absolutely it's so possible, and with with a single lander. To just go ahead and do it. Why? Why wouldn't you? If you're going to have to go to those moons anyway, drop off on the way and pick up some some samples for the route home. You know, right? Uh, yes, uh, uh, I, I'm very excited by this. And um, if it's if it's practical and people are discussing it, and they just happened in the future to be like, you know, okay, should we bring stuff back? Uh, I just, I'm gonna I'm gonna read I'm gonna read the crap out of those papers if I can get my hands on them. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> the the <laughs> whatever gets published. Uh, because I think they are probably the most industrially useful uh, bodies in the solar system, I would say, like for a, a spacefaring civilization, because you can actually get at them. This is the thing. So again, uh, going back to what you, what you originally said, sort of starting out with Star Trek and then working backwards, I think actually this is, this is one, of the, uh, one of the big bridges there, one of the, between the future and, and the current the world we live in today. I think the Martian moons are a critical part of this. Uh, because whilst obviously the Martian surface is going to have access to way more stuff, I, if nothing else, it has an enormous atmosphere, at least you know, enormous in its total mass, not in its density and so on. There, it's not particularly great, but like, uh, you know, a couple of hundred kilo, well, excuse me, no, a couple of hundred pascals, not hundred kilopascals, a couple of hundred pascals is still enough. Just for that is probably uh, way better than, say, any asteroid. Uh, because of how easy it is to get the carbon dioxide and tiny amounts of nitrogen and argon out of Mars's atmosphere and turn it into useful stuff. Uh, I, it's, obviously, it's preferable. And yes, you have ore deposits and things like that almost certainly available on Mars that are not going to be 
available basically anywhere in free space. Asteroids are way worse in terms of ore quality than what you can get on Earth, certainly, and what we have every reason to suspect is the case on Mars. But to get stuff off the Martian surface requires a lot of rocket fuel, so that, by contrast, getting stuff uh, off the off off the Martian moons way way easier. And indeed, the the same argument holds for asteroids, except that in their case, you don't have you know billions of years of weathering, so that the ore quality is really really quite bad. And so, my preference then is still for the uh, the Martian moons. I don't know, but the, this is this is my major uh, my major <laughs> side project. <laughs> I, I'm obsessed with them, you see. Uh, but they're clear they're not the only thing. Uh, can you think of other other parts in that journey, uh, trying to put the picture together, that 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 we're really going to need the other other critically important parts, especially parts that uh, that you've been working on in the past? Yeah, I think there's a lot of steps. So one is we need to get as many people access to space and to other bodies as possible. And so that starts with CubeSats and moves to, to standardization. Something else we need to focus on is industry and being able to produce industrial uh, stock, do mining and industrial practices on other planets. You know, We need to have our concrete mills and our metal mills, steel production on other planets is a big step forward when it raises our civilization's technological level to be able to produce and do import-export on, on a planetary scale. And then one of the biggest things, I think, which is clear, we see this in, in our far future visions, and, and you see this starting now, is in-orbit manufacturing of, of all kinds. This it goes for everything from those micro-G-produced uh, pharmaceuticals, but really we're thinking of, produce, you want to produce vehicles in space, produce uh, or put together at least, you know, even if you're shipping off two different uh, parts of a spacecraft and then assembling them in orbit, basically you're doing an ISS, except it's, it's a, a collector, it's a cycler between Mars and Earth. Those are the big steps to have, to move from these kind of bespoke, uh, you know, one use or repeated use, but very fragile kind of technologies and space vehicles to your caterpillars of space vehicles that will just stand up to 20, 30 years of just work effectively and being able to put those types of things together in orbit is a huge step because it's going to require technology and it's going to require sizes that aren't going to be friendly to launch vehicles or even assembly on earth in general right yes yes absolutely if i mean i have this is exactly what i've been working on right so i've got a few ideas for how to put exactly this kind of thing together and where in fact to put them uh do you have do you have plans or um uh, go, going to that, in fact, in, in, in orbit manufacture, that aspect of it. Uh, do, you, do you have particular ideas for that? Uh, within NA? Uh, you sure, or, or, or outside, it's fine. Within the, the context of Nexus Aurora, we would like to basically be a connection. Between, so we're a professional community arms, right? But in, in our community, we aim to connect projects with the resources that they need. So if we have projects that aim to do testing of yeah small orbital assembly components we can connect those with analog sites on earth and do production and manufacturing for them we haven't yet seen that and as it's a bit surprising um, that we haven't yet seen a project that focuses on that within the community uh, arm of nisora though in fairness with the recent decade i don't think anyone can uh, not see why all of the the younger people coming up now are all really interested in making their own launch company which is unfortunate when you see all the ideas that they they have, there's just not really room in, in launches anymore 
for new companies. But yeah, that's not something we've actually seen, but it would be a really interesting project to see someone bring to the table and to be able to put resources behind that. Um, when I, uh, so I, I also work outside Nexusora as a propulsion engineer, right? And one of the projects we work on, or the, the flagship project that we work on, is meeting uh, ISAM objectives, which is in space uh, assembly, manufacturing, maintenance of other vehicles, of the same vehicle, and part of that, obviously, is manufacturing. So yeah, there, we have some basic steps, and the biggest, uh, I think, example is Orbital Assembly Corporation, or company. They are taking the steps to do those first baby manufacturing steps. Do you know what I mean? So we need to do that in the future and we are going towards it both professionally and within Nexus Aurora, but it is really at the teething stage. We're nowhere near where we're going to need to be for even cyclers, but we're taking those baby steps to say, can we at least make a satellite in orbit? Can we, you know, take two CubeSats or take a single CubeSat, make it split itself and kind of drift apart and then do mini proximity operations to, to re-rendezvous with itself, right? And you can see that we're very much not anywhere near where we're going to need to be in the future, but that's okay, right? We've got to learn to crawl before we can walk. Um, and there's a reason we know none of us know colloquially really of any huge projects that are actively ongoing. Everything right now is on paper. Uh, money is going into it. You know, NASA and, and the Space Force are, are funding these SBIR contracts for OAC and for, for other companies. But we haven't yet to see any of those really put into practice what we're going to need. That is the biggest thing in my mind that we need is, is that orbital assembly and then uh, infrastructure manufacturing on other planets. Yes, quite so. I give you a very long-winded answer to that yeah, question. No, no, that, well, yeah, exactly. This is, I mean, this is wonderful stuff, actually. I think, uh, me and I, I, I think I speak for a lot of our audience when I say, it's very exciting to hear what's actually going on within NASA, where the uh, where the money is going, and where the, uh, the 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 new company interest actually is. In my case, I uh, I have I have uh, well again it's a kind of a moonshot type thing, it's a longer term type thing, but I have an idea for um, putting a a a free a free space factory uh, between the Earth and the Moon at the Grand Point One in a in a halo orbit. Uh, where we'd send we'd send Martian colonists like as a provisional thing. So obviously, if you're going to send people to Mars, uh, well, the ticket there is extremely expensive, and the journey time there is dangerous, and like it's a big expense of time, you know, at least six months, uh, depending on you know how much fuel you want to spend, etc. Uh, but then the the gaps between launch windows is about two years, so that uh, if you if you decide to go to Mars and you uh, you you put the money in. Once you get into a rocket, you, you're doing it. It's going to happen, whether you want to or not. Because if if you if you want to get out halfway through a launch, uh, it can't be done. <laughs> and you know, like uh, you, if you go all the way there and decide, uh, you know, even halfway there that you you don't want to stay, you're you're in for the full thing, uh, whether you're suited to it or not. Whether you discover halfway there that that you you don't like it or not, right? So I I think as a um, as a nice sort of halfway house, like a uh, a means of training people and uh, letting people have a good experience of space. If you put a factory between, say, um, Earth and the Moon, which uses resources that are supplied to it relatively cheaply from from the Martian moons, but wherever you want to get it from, right? Uh, I still think they're the best place to get material. 
uh, because they, out of everywhere else, I can't think of anywhere cheaper to get material from. Uh, to you know, like because uh, once it passes Earth, or getting up to the uh, to a halo at Lagrange point one between Earth and the Moon, uh, EML one, let's call it. Uh, all you have to do is aerobrake a little bit uh, below sort of uh, interplanetary velocities. So below when you when you approach the Earth, you get to maybe eleven and a half kilometers per second. If you go down to just under 11 kilometers per second, so just a tiny part of your total velocity, that's enough to send you up to L1, right? So you can send material there relatively easily. But also, uh, it's, it's basically the end of a very, very steep ellipse. So you almost have to get to Earth escape velocity to get there in the first place. So you can imagine sending people over, like instead of uh, going straight to Mars, you pay to go up to a, uh, a factory at EML one, and uh, maybe you know you you spend you spend six months to a year though or something putting stuff together, learning to work in low gravity, and seeing whether or not you you work well in space, making the decision for yourself. And then if you want to go home, it's not a six month journey with two years between launch cycles or two and a bit years, right? It's just it's like seven days, less than that even, uh, to go straight back to Earth. And if you want to go to Mars, uh, this is the great thing. You, you can drop off from the, from the halo orbit. It only takes, you know, on the order of like a, a little bit over 10 meters per second, I think, to jump out of such a thing. Do a close approach with the Earth, and you're almost at escape velocity anyway, so that the cost is about the same as just going straight to Mars. Except, of course, you need to pay for more food and so on. But, you know, uh, discounting that. You then you can cut by Earth and then just go to Mars as you were planning to do anyway. So you 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 go up to the factory, like uh, six months to a year or something like this before the intended launch date for Mars. And if at any time you say I, I can't stand this, I I didn't think it was going to be like this, I want to go home. It's really not that hard to get you home. It's only like a week before you can be back on the ground again. And the the costs associated with going to Mars once the time comes for the the launch window to open up are not that greatly in excess of what you'd have to pay uh, if you were just going straight there. What's more, uh, putting stuff together in space is difficult, and astronauts have uh, you know like they they they're doing a very tricky job. Anything that has to be done by astronauts then tends to be expensive, and the astronauts tend to get paid pretty good, and they should get paid pretty pretty good considering what they're doing, right? So if you can't afford to go all the way to Mars. Uh, you could, I, I could imagine, sort of working off the the payment uh, by doing work in a factory at EML one until you've uh, you've paid for the full ticket. So you get a you get a flight out there. You get you know a, a good ex a good good chance for experience in uh, you know working in zero gravity, working in a space based environment, getting used to everything, and you're able to do enormous amounts of good for space industrialization and for the you know. Uh, the burgeoning civilization that we're trying to set up on other worlds, and then you know there's a there's a way of getting back home if you need to, but uh, if if you if after six months to a year or something like that, you know like the the veteran guy who's been he's you know like he's he's been in space for like ten years, sort of stern eyes, he's like, I think you got the right stuff. You want to come to Mars or not? And he's like, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're like let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> if that if that's the case, then you can just go straight there. I reckon it's the perfect sort of um, in-between place that also gets you that manufacturing base in free space. I reckon that's the way to do it. Right. I think that's good. I think it's, uh, yeah, like a bit like a sta your staging ground, if you will, 
Um, it's you're going to from your regional to your international airport. And that way it also simplifies the, the in-between, right? You only need to have a craft that goes out to this kind of gateway uh, to give it a, a very unique name gateway that's never been used <laughs> for any other mission. And then you have that like that cycler between Mars and Earth. I think that would work very well. And it also lends itself into that future kind of uh, uh, view of how things work, right? If you come in, you're holding high anchor at, at in low Earth orbit because you're at one of these these initial stations. These are kind of your immigration control uh, customs where you can drop off your, your ship. This is the port of entry, effectively. I think it's a good idea. I, to be honest, between this and the previous uh, ideas that you've suggested over the last couple of episodes, maybe we should just get uh, Elon Musk, someone to just drop a nice big check off to you and then you can just implement all of these ideas and see what works I, I, i'm not i'm not sure that i'd be able to actually speak like if if elon gets on the phone with me or something like I, i'm not i think i might be too starstruck <laughs> <laughs> we'll just get him we'll get him on the podcast oh my next god week, don't worry. oh my actual god I'm, I'm kidding i somehow <laughs> i will make it work uh elon if by some some miracle you are listening to this uh <laughs> whatever it takes man <laughs> we'll make this work uh, wow. text. Uh, yeah, I mean that that'd be fantastic. Like uh, I, 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 I keep I keep drawing stuff out. You see, uh, my intention actually, I think, is to to make like a, a, a sort of a, an illustrated cross section book. Eventually, I'm not sure whether that's possible to do within uh, Nexus Aurora, uh, but then like something something like that, just showing uh, how you might put things like this together, like to give people hope for what to do in space. And then I think there are, there are some things a little like this that, that have been done with Nexus Aurora. In many senses, the million-person Mars colony uh, really was the, the architecture version of something like that already. So, you know, the, that, that's, that's like a nice, a nice project I think perhaps we could do in the future, like put together like a, um, well, like almost like a, a science fiction type thing, but with completely solid science and engineering to the greatest extent known. Uh, but that, but that's that's flashy and that's inviting for people to just you know pick up and look through. I think like uh, a roadmap towards uh, colonizing the entire solar system might be quite compelling. That that's one of the things I've been working on actually. So I think I think that was definitely something we also kicked around in the wake of um, the end of the Mars Society competition. To, to go back to a previous point you made about what do we need to get to that that future point, more important than anything above technological uh, milestones is absolutely it needs popular support this needs to be an effort that humanity can get behind and say we want to do this we need to do this and we're going to do this because when when we uh, as a species decide to put our efforts towards something we pretty rapidly you know are able to to achieve it what we need to do is make those strides and keep up that momentum we can't go to the moon and then 50 or back to the moon or to Mars and then 50 years later then we decide to go back because we'd stopped previously we need that that momentum to continue going and to continue improving and luckily with the huge uh, explosion in the new space industry of new companies there is a lot of more uh, uh, publicity right there's a lot more interest in it especially with the rise of, of figures for you know better or worse on, on social media like Elon Musk that are raising the stakes and are getting people involved and interested. Even if you don't really have a connection to the space industry, you generally will know who this guy is and what he's doing and that we're landing rockets now. FYI, 
we're now landing rockets. You know, it, we did make a huge step between the 50 years or so whenever we, we basically got the planes and 50 years later, we walked on the moon and we're coming up on that time again and we need to, we need to be walking on Mars, but we need to be consistently doing that. So more important than any technological milestone, whether that's in orbit manufacturing or industries on other planets or staging grounds between the moon and Earth, this needs to be something we're all for, right? And of course, I know I'm going to be preaching to the choir here, but absolutely, this is something we need to go out. We need people to be inspired about it. The, the thing that's on our side here is that space is a very easy thing I find to inspire people with. There's a, there's a reason all those all kids want to be astronauts, you know, when they're, when they're young. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. Sort of now, again, uh, I completely feel this. Uh, I, you know, when, when, I was, when I was 10, I was still drawing out rocket designs. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, the electrons and protons don't, don't make beams like that. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think the, the physics is particularly <laughs> good, but the enthusiasm was there at least. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, you know, like uh, we've all got stories like that, right? Of one kind or another. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you talk to young people today and it's just the same. But, I fear, I fear that in many senses, the, uh, the, the kinds of innovations that we, that we need to really make space happen aren't fashionable at the moment. Like uh, engineering in general, I'm not sure it's so fashionable in the modern day. I, find, I see a lot of disparaging sort of news and so on. Like, it seems like all the money, all the attention seems to go to very different ways of seeing the world, very different skills. So I was like, I, 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 I want to... I'm really interested in finding finding things that space can do for us that uh, that 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 completely outcompete uh, you know the alternative places to put your put your mind towards. So I'm sure you know, like you you, you come mm. up to the point of thinking about you know uh, uh, getting a career, starting a business, and there's you know at least for me there was like this sort of this thought in the back of my mind that's like, well, if I learned marketing, I probably do a whole bunch better than if I learned engineering, right? Right. I mean, you know, like when I was when I was doing my physics degree, I, uh, you know, like the the PhD students around me and so on, they were talking about postdoc space. I'm like, what's postdoc space? They say, well, that's when after you get your PhD, which you have to pay for almost always <laughs> in physics, uh, you kind of you end up wandering around, uh, not being able to get tenure and getting paid less than minimum wage to do work that's basically impossible for like the vast majority of the population. <laughs> you know, oh, it's very depressing. I, 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 I keep uh, thinking back to my, you know, my undergrad days. It was so much better then. And I'm like, um, <laughs> oh dear, I'm not sure what's happened. But yeah, yeah like that, that kind of thing worries me a little bit. So I've, I've been looking as well at what you can do in space. That's um, like the, the, the potential that's really there. So I think uh, to help to help out with this, uh, it seems like so with. With the Earth, we get maybe what some two hundred millionth, uh, something like something like one two hundred millionth of the total light that's given out by the sun. Almost all of it just goes out into space, just completely vanishes, has no no economic use to anyone, as far as we know, and uh, as far as as far as it makes any sense that you 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 wouldn't believe, you know, that uh, say aliens are picking it up or something like that. So it's almost all of it just flies off and is wasted. In fact. The vast majority of the light that even gets to the surface on the Earth ends up not serving economic purposes. But actually, collecting it up in space is really not that hard. You don't even need solar cells. So just with like uh, you know, you go into your kitchen, you get like a sheet of um, like aluminium foil or something like this, right? I that's too thick. That is way thicker than what you need to get something like this to work in space, right? 
uh, if you get like a, a big dish, uh, dish is actually quite hard to manufacture. I prefer a, an annulus, so like a little uh, sort of a ring shape of uh, foil at an angle. You know, if that's many kilometers wide, you can casually move around for, you know, like a, a being practical, like a few tens of tons of mass, right? But you, for a few tens of tons of mass near, uh, you know, in Earth's part of the solar system, you can be casually moving around like gigawatts of sunlight with no moving parts and with a system which can just sit there for, you know, well, not for all time because it will start to get broken down by radiation effects and so on. But for the most part, just sit there for, for you know, decades uh, without any extra work and with a very, very simple structure that can be put together easily in space, right? We have access potentially to enormous amounts of energy in space which we can use for industrial activity. So that, for instance, uh, things which on Earth are expensive to build, uh, like you know, if, you, if you're very interested in getting solar panels set up and things like this, well, you know, if you're working with, say, semiconductor-grade silicon, I mean, or, well, solar-grade silicon, rather, not suited for semiconductors, that's very, very pure, just, well, let's say very, very, very pure. For solar cells, very, very pure is sufficient rather than very, very, very pure. Right, so you know you, you don't go further than you have to. If you if you want to manufacture stuff like that, it's casually easy to do in space, even though it's incredibly hard to do on the Earth's surface. So that uh, as a as an example, in case in case you you uh, you look out at the you know if you if you dream like we do and you're listening in and you look out at the world and you're just like, well, I mean, I'm not sure that engineering really is. The uh, the path towards you know the 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 money you know to towards a, a means to sustain myself in the future, uh, fret not, because even just looking at looking at this this is just one example. There's enormous power available casually in space, and so if you know what to do with it, you could uh, if you want to make solar cells for instance, you could just mass manufacture these and then just send them to the earth. I think the going price for uh, silicon wafers of that quality is on the order of $300 per kilogram. That's something like that, uh, the data is from a couple of years back. Right? But at $300 per kilogram, uh, if, you, if you capture like a, even a casual sort of asteroid around like a silicaceous asteroid, or you use the Martian moons themselves, uh, happily you get billions of tons of silica locked up there. And if you know how to pull it apart, and uh, you, know, you have means of working with it that just requires, especially if it just requires heat in the range of say uh, only up to like five or six hundred degrees centigrade that is the cheapest thing to get in space right if you just need moderate heat that is casually easy because you just use a big solar concentrator even if it requires electricity though to start to pull it apart in some parts of the process naturally will even then uh it's it can at scale and if you know what you're doing i think be casually inexpensive to mass produce this stuff and bring it to earth and so, you know, like the if we're just looking at the energy sector, that's a multi-trillion-dollar world business. So that there can be huge potential here for making money as well. So that you know, it's not just like a a, a, a sort of a, a moonshot pie in the sky type thing that uh, only has money because of companies like SpaceX at the moment. I I firmly believe like there are there are solid uh, solid physical reasons to suppose that the potential for massive industrial growth in space and uh, you know, providing for all of humanity, just with this as, as an example, but there are loads of other ways as well. For instance, uh, 3D organ printing, that's a really great one, right? Uh, and that would probably be just like a low Earth orbit thing, but that's fantastic too. 
there's there, there's blatantly loads of ways actually in which the money can flow in in which uh, you know we can really make good positive difference to humanity using space travel so i i, I want to communicate that as well right that's a wonderful message that um i think like in my case, it's, it's not something people explicitly say. Uh, so it's not, it's not clear. Like when, when people talk about aerospace and so on, like it's in the context of uh, budgets that are given to them by, uh, by governments. And so, you know, it's a, it's a general funding, especially in, in the United States. Uh, but then elsewhere in the world, say like in Britain, <laughs> there basically isn't any. <laughs> There's no money in aerospace. Except for, you know, like very limited things, you know, like maybe, uh, uh, okay, like Royals Rice and so on. There's plenty of money here, but that's not quite the same as Star Trek. I, you know, it's very cool as well. I, no, no disparaging, like uh, aircraft, aircraft engine, like commercial aircraft engines are fantastic, but it's not quite the same. Uh, still, like uh, to explicitly point it out, I think at least that the, the enormous amount of light and energy there, there's casually available in free space. That's something we've got. That's something that space, a space-faring civilization can get that is very hard to come by on Earth and that we can use to provide for humanity here. Yeah. I thought when you started talking about uh, the sun, I thought you were going to start pitching a Dyson sphere, <laughs> which is one thing I, I would, no don't think I would be behind. No way. Don't do that in our system. Um, this is, you, you don't set up... Um, if you find oil underneath your flower bed, uh, it's probably a bad idea to drill for it, right? Because like, you, you know, you, you're going to get oil all over the garden. Right, like uh, keep keep your garden and uh, have a workplace someplace else. Right, don't mix the two. Uh, the, you know, there's a mildly explicit but very popular saying. I think it's popular in the uh, the southern United States, which works perfectly well here. Right, about uh, not mixing up uh, places with different purposes within the home. Right, so you, I, I wouldn't do anything like that in our system. Uh, no way. But you don't need a Dyson sphere to like uh, if you had, say. Uh, yeah. Okay. Take a take. Take maybe a um, a square a thousand kilometers wide that's facing towards the sun, and put that square anywhere within, uh, say, you know, higher orbit or the distance between Earth and the Moon. Uh, this this might account for. Oh wow, what is that? Yeah, there's like less than a millionth of the surface area that you could get in, you know, uh, Earth's sphere of influence, going out just a little bit beyond the Moon and so on. Nonetheless, the, the light that's falling upon that, which is equivalent to something, you know, it, it's on the order of uh, 100 and, well, no, 1,300 terawatts, something like that. Uh, that, is, that is about, you know, it's about 100 times as much uh, energy as is required to do everything that humanity does, accounting for travel, accounting for all industry, the entire internet casually. Uh, all consumer electronics, all, co uh, yeah, all, all consumer electricity, that is, uh, cooking your food, everything. Mm -hmm. The whole thing could be casually done with the sunlight that just flies through uh, some, some sector of space. You know, uh, like that's even you know, like close by to Earth orbit. And if it's perpendicular to the sun, uh, excuse, yeah, perpendicular to the sun, but also um, you know, quite far away, maybe you know, like at, L at L2, for instance, behind the moon, even like uh, as as it goes around, uh, as the moon goes around the Earth, uh, you could have it arranged so that you don't even know it's there. If you couldn't, like you, even with a telescope, you couldn't spot that such a thing was being uh, being built, right? You you could have the entire thing uh, operate continuously and not have any sign that anything like this is going on, even in the solar system. 
right? Hey, if we didn't have satellites there, maybe aliens could be doing it now and we wouldn't know, right? So you could have uh, 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 an energy output, say, say you're going at like, you know, maybe 10% efficiency or something like this. I, I have no illusions that for a long while, so, uh, you know, free space built solar panels are not going to be as good as the, what is it, the triple junction solar cells they make at NASA these days. I, I can't compete with that. You know, <laughs> there's no manufacturing process you can casually do in space or compete with that. So maybe we only get like 10% efficiency. But even at 10% efficiency, such a device, which can casually hide behind the moon, you wouldn't even know it's there, would be sufficient to produce, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the order of 100 times as much electricity as the Earth's uses, but still on the order of about 10 times as much total energy as is required to do everything. So there's, there's so much of this resource available in space uh, that is, you know, like uh, energy in the form of sunlight. There are troubles associated with getting the energy down to the surface of the Earth. That's true. I'm not so sure about beaming power like through microwaves because I like birds. I, I don't want to fry their brains. That's not very nice. Uh, protect the birds, people. <laughs> right? Yeah, if we have problems with uh, wind generation, power generation, yeah, I can only imagine beaming. Though it has been demonstrated on a decent scale. Really? In the US, the uh, microwave power. Nice. Beaming. That's very cool. Uh, what, with did, did they did they look at effects like for um, you know wildlife and so on? I don't think so. So it was the US Army that did it, um, which I don't generally know if they have the highest regard for <laughs> wildlife effects anyway mm. with their operation. But it was a point to point. It was a ground point to point um, transmission, and I think they might have tried to do a transmission to an aircraft as well. But they did it over, it was either a couple of miles or a couple of kilometers, I believe, which is, I mean, as far as demonstrators go, pretty decent uh, in terms of what the potential is going forward. Yeah, that's really quite impressive. But yeah, I don't, don't know if they checked to see if any birds th flew through their uh, path and became roast chickens. Or... Yeah, yes, that's the, only, that's the only thing. I mean, uh, thankfully with microwaves, uh, because... They they tend to spread out you so when whenever you uh, like many of you probably heard of uh, diffraction and so on or, or understand it very thoroughly but uh, if you've not uh, generally when you whenever you're you're sending waves out of an emitter of any kind uh, electromagnetic waves being one such type and radio waves being one such type of electromagnetic wave um, you 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 cannot help but have the beam sort of spread out uh, as it as it propagates. So that you need an enormous uh, 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 transmission system, like an enormous aperture. So a you know a, an antenna, or however it is you're trying to do it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you need like an enormous system to to fire the the beam out if you want it not to spread out very fast as it goes through. Well, not to spread out uh, too much as as it crosses big distances, and you need a very large, coincidentally, at the same time, a very very large. Uh, receiver at the other end if you're going to pick it up, which is why a lot of the plans for this kind of thing involve like enormous areas. So, you know, like a, a 10 kilometer wide sort of collector on Earth, right? And then uh, if it's that wide anyway, and it has to be because the microwaves tend to spread out, then, you know, you can, you can maybe accept uh, lower beam loadings, right? So, you know, the, the actual amount of microwaves per, uh, per square meter that are actually coming down can be quite small, but because the receiver has to be big anyway, you know, you still get uh, you still get enough to power a city, uh, even though in principle it's small enough that the you know the birds and so on don't notice. Uh, still, I'm not I'm not so sure. Unfortunately, I'm not so sure that's the way forward because of the uh, the issue with the birds. But 
there there are other things as well, like the, the enormous areas required and so on. Uh, and the distances required, but meaning that you need very, very large uh, antennas to actually send the microwaves. On Mars, however, no such problems exist. And I think microwave beaming is the easiest way to get massive infrastructure set up and uh, massive production. So if you want you know, a gigawatt of available electricity on the Martian surface, you can beam that from space pretty easily. The distances involved can be less as well. That's the great thing. If, you, if you're only in like low Martian orbit, because there's basically no atmosphere, you have nothing in the way. You just send your microwaves down just a few hundred kilometers so that the sizes can be shrunk you know, by a factor of 10, at least compared to what's contemplated on Earth, or you know, a factor of 100 if you're thinking about sending it from geosynchronous orbit, which is very difficult to do right. because of the distances. I think for Mars, that's a really great way of getting electricity, second only to nuclear power in its, uh, in its convenience. But unlike nuclear power, because the, the receiver is so huge, you don't need to worry about waste heat. It's, there's no problem there at all. You don't need to have waste heat radiators and so on set up. You also don't need turbines and things like this. Uh, you, know, you don't need hot working fluids uh, or complicated machinery. It's, it can be a very, very simple system. So I think for Mars, that's a cheat code to, um, to massively scaling up industrial production. Uh, but in the case of Earth, I'm not a big fan. Hmm. I could see. I definitely see the uh, issues to those environmental impact assessments. But it is gratifying to see these new technologies that do kind of come out and do seem like they are, as you put it, cheat codes. Right? We're using Lagrange points, using uh, microwave beaming of power transmission, uh, doing this massive power generation, power farming, basically in orbit. Um, or and there's probably other ways to get around being able to do power transmission within uh, you know Earth without having to put uh, animals and, and things like that in danger there's, there, there's definitely going to be ways around that but other technologies as well like the Lagrange points like um, optical communications are making huge strides in really breaking down a lot of the barriers you know this is going from the first tvs to to a full color plasma tv on your wall it is a big step and a lot of the new technologies being developed at the moment are really going to be useful for going into space especially when it comes to radiation protection as well but a good, a good thing about what we were discussing before about needing a lot of public support for this kind of space stuff, and that it, especially when it lacks from the government agencies in certain countries, is that a lot of it is going commercial. You know, there is a lot of commercial interest from outside the space industry in venture capital firms and in, in the stock market. And that tends to, to, to breed the conditions that will allow us to go forward kind of without necessarily having to get everyone on our side. Because we, the, the, the thing that really brings people over is going to be achievements. The, the successful launch and deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope was you know, a massive. And the photos that come out from that helps generate a ton of good PR. It's all about that progress. The momentum will have to probably come from somewhere else. But the good thing about that is for both you and for me and for everyone, is that it is economically viable and people are trying to find every method of potentially making money off of space, which is leading to this second commercial level space race. Yes, indeed. I mean, it, it does seem at least that, uh, that things are looking up. <laughs> Certainly the commercial aspect is playing a big part in this. Uh, though, as, as, we, uh, as we talked about before, like, I, I really do feel for, uh, for NASA 
I, I I'm a big fan of them, and I think fundamentally, uh, well, like even listening to listening to free talks online that uh, you know that that are made between uh, you know high up uh, NASA employees or people that I regard as high up, so very creative people who work at NASA. For instance, Jeffrey Landis, he is amazing. He's the the uh, the first person, as far as I know, to uh, to talk about Venus cloud cities and so on. That was his thing. He he does a lot of stuff for Venus as well, right? Uh, they, I, I really feel for them. They, they really think like me. I could see myself ending up doing the the kinds of things that uh, that that NASA has been doing, or falling into perhaps some of the traps uh, that arguably they've uh, they've fallen into in in, in past years. Uh, like the 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 strengths and weaknesses of their approach, I, I really feel for. So naturally, in, in just the same way, <laughs> I have sort of a hundred tabs open in my brain, a hundred. Oh, I've, I've lost count definitely of projects going and uh, very few of them get fully completed in the end right <laughs> so like so the, the 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 commercial the commercial aspect of uh, space travel and so on that's really come about in the last few years has added the this this completely new uh, aspect to the aerospace industry well excuse me the, the the space version the space part of the aerospace industry the aero part has been doing just fine commercially for a very long time oh uh, well Maybe, maybe not as a stock investment. Like if you listen to Warren Buffett, for instance, the the uh, investing in, uh, say, commercial airliners, you know, ha- ha- has been very hit or miss, and generally speaking, uh, would would have lost you money. Uh, but that aside, the planes fly just fine. Uh, with 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 space, like I, I can see that um, we it was it was missing in some senses uh, some of the 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 innovations and the common sense that came from very recently uh the the commercial sector and now that that's been sort of transplanted in and the the new thought process have come have have come in through for instance spacex uh quite famously but also through uh for other innovators i can see the effect that that's already been having it's very promising so you know like it's um well it's, a, it's an old adage i think uh amongst uh amongst failed entrepreneurs in the united states which which of course uh, is a great interest of mine. You know, if you if if you're a physicist, especially like a you know a physicist in the United Kingdom or something like this, where the the budgets are not particularly high, no one really has any money for things like this anymore. Uh, occasionally, I think about how, how I will uh, how how I might eventually buy a house or something like that. You know, in, in thirty years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind of like so. So naturally, you know, I I I I, I look around and I, I I listen to what people say. Uh, the the old adage seems to be like um, you can go for decades trying out essentially the same things and have a whole bunch of things going right and still have no chance of real success because you're missing just a few little aspects of what you were doing. So that uh, you know you can have you can have very good ideas, which uh, because failure is complicated. So Peter Thiel, for instance, the venture capitalist, he says uh, failure is not generally a good thing to learn from, and Elon Musk as well. He says. Uh, Try don't you know like fail fast fail often is a bad idea for aerospace because generally when failures happen there's a whole bunch of things that were going wrong so I I, I won't say NASA's failure to get us to to Mars since uh, since the moon landings and so on uh, I I will say aerospace in general's uh, failure to do this uh, and you know like or in in inability to fully get it working uh, could could easily have been due to just a few of these aspects not being in place. Like like standardization, for instance, standardization of a simple launch platform, as we've seen for the CubeSat systems, 
uh, even in in the case of NASA, there were big attempts towards standardization anyway. Uh, for instance, with with the space shuttle, unfortunately, they, it didn't pan out. But you know, like having having that as a launch platform, if it did pan out, probably would have been a good idea. Nonetheless, I can see like a, a, a few a few clever ideas sort of coming in from a completely new place, just fixing a few of the bits that weren't going right, so that suddenly. Uh, the an industry which has just been uh, poised on the edge of doing something incredible for the last fifty years might be able to kick off in the next few. So if you are listening to this and just thinking about going into aerospace, uh, you're in exciting times and probably actually exciting times rather than unfortunately the last uh, last fifty years or so, which was still exciting but not not quite as exciting. You, you won't see nothing yet, right? And I think that's where it's come from. It's the these new little bits. Uh, of commercial thinking, which are completely alien to me, for instance, uh, from you know, from my science background, I, I project management. My girlfriend tells me that I should really learn how to do that, and I'm like, "What project management? Isn't that just sort of you know, like spreadsheets or something?" She's like, "No, no, no. Trust me, it'll revolutionize what you're doing." <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay, <laughs> and she introduces it to me, and suddenly everything gets done on time. I'm like, "Why? How's that work? <laughs> it's like magic, right?" <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, I, I always like to think of it as we're, you know, because you you hear the people that say born too late to explore the Earth, born too early to explore the stars, right? But to me, this is one of the most exciting times to be alive, whether you're a, a seasoned veteran in the industry, whether you're just now getting into the industry, which I think is the best, or whether you are uh, still, you know, in high school looking towards going to this industry, because we have an amazing opportunity here to shape those first real steps. Not since Apollo 11 and the Apollo program in general have we really taken such a tremendous step in space. And this is the first step, right? When we imagine the future and we imagine us as the Federation of Planets or you know whatever uh, uh, sci-fi future you want to imagine, everything starts with the first step. And we did that first step on the moon, but this is the first real push out into the solar system these are the first steps of humanity into becoming the future and that's just incredibly exciting and why i think it's so so cool to be working right now and seeing it come together and being a part of that effort yes absolutely actually uh that brings up that brings up an interesting point do you know of uh, like from from your experience within this industry do you know of any aspects of it that are really lacking, uh, lacking development at the moment, lacking interest, where you think there are massive opportunities? So, for instance, um, say, uh, well, in, my, in my case, uh, you know, I, I would say things like ore smelting and things like that in zero gravity, like how to, how to take asteroid material and turn it into uh, viable products. So industrial chemistry in the context of asteroids, that would be my thing that I would add in. But something like this that, that, that doesn't receive much attention. But if you were to go into it uh, right now and you know, bring enthusiasm and uh, read a lot of books on the subject, you'd find yourself with very little competition and you could easily get into a place where you know, you're going to be you're going to be able to do massive amounts, have a massive impact on our future. There's, to be honest, a ton of stuff. Um, the, as, as small as the industry is, everyone is kind of trying to do everything everywhere all at once that Everyone is finding a new path every single day. There's a new startup that has a unique idea, whether it's getting things into orbit reliably. There's still tons of improvements to be made on that. You know, the old two stage, even if it's reusable, can only go so far. There's a ceiling to that. 
are there better ways to get things in orbit? Is there better ways to manage uh, or, or, or already orbital craft? Are there better ways to manufacture in orbit or to do one of the, just like you said, one of the biggest industries people haven't really looked at yet because it may be a few steps ahead of where we're currently at is taking advantage of materials that we are able to extract and, and refine within orbit or on other planets, you know, even down to there's no, I mean, imagine taking a plane and all of the services involved in taking a flight, especially an international one. Every single service there needs to have its space uh, analog, right? Even down to who's going to do, who's going to take care of producing and manufacturing and shipping your in-flight entertainment, your your food. Would you like steak or fish? You know, on your mission to Mars. So it's kind of it, it's a bit of a, a cop out answer to say there's absolutely industries that they can be go into, but it's really just unlimited. Every single thing. If you can imagine a new way to look at it, there's a good chance that it has its own market niche. And there are some ridiculous niches people and companies are successfully pursuing already that have raised millions of dollars in, in capital and funding rounds. And they're just doing super well, even though they, you, they have a really niche idea. You know, Some of the stuff like OAC, uh, I think they are the ones who just got an orbital contract for basically being an orbital gas station. Which, yeah, most people aren't thinking of that. They're thinking of how to get the craft into orbit and then move them, but they're not thinking, can we stop in LEO and you know get fuel up? And they part of that contract is they're going to hopefully deliver hydrazine, I believe, to a uh, uh, a space force craft, one craft. So as as niche as you can get, and basically anything you can imagine on Earth will need its analog in space as we go forward, whether now or in the very near future. Right. Uh, now, yeah, uh, <laughs> I slight, slight cough out, but at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm going to take that as meaning basically anything at this point. Like it's not, there's nothing that's been set in stone. Is that sort of the feeling that's in, in aerospace at the moment? Like there, there, there's nothing set in stone so that innovations in any of the, any of the sectors that you can imagine are likely going to have a big impact over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a couple of big targets, right? There's in-orbit assembly of uh, space stations, or there's just space stations in general. It's a big uh, Hilton recently signed to start designing interiors of uh, some space stations. There's not so much explored, but will be a big industry is uh, the cyclers between uh, the, the single ships that stay in orbit and they go between Earth and Mars. And then there's landers. But if you are specifically looking, you know what? One thing I will say, is repeatable use landing craft. It is not something we've ever done before. We didn't land uh, an Apollo you know, craft and then take off and then land again somewhere else. We never landed anything on Mars that really that we've, we've landed, we've taken off and we've landed again. One of the big things that you've, you can see whenever you watch videos of these craft landing is the amount of dust and debris it kicks up. And you can never be sure that that isn't doing something absolutely catastrophic to your engines or to anything else on the craft. So if you can develop materials or a way of being able to land reliably uh, without having to worry about doing maintenance in between being able to launch and land again, that is a huge industry I see coming forth that hasn't really been explored much. Some companies that have looked into it, like Maston Space Systems, unfortunately they went under. There are companies that not really looking directly into this specific thing, but it's a huge issue that we found when we did some research 
that we realize, hey, wait a second, we want to reland, but no one's ever done that before. And some of those systems are very, very sensitive systems that you don't want to kick a bunch of debris into your engine and then relight it and explode. Yes. So if, if you can figure out some way to do that kind of landing pad style system, that would be massive. Right. Cool, cool, cool. Actually, I mean, I've, I've had a few thoughts. Well, not about this, but uh, that brings me to another thing. Uh, for Again, I, I tend to be sort of medium to long term rather than very short term. Uh, but it, you imagine if you have two Martian cities, right, connected by a, uh, a rail system, uh, because there's hardly any air resistance on the Martian surface, there's no reason you can't get a rail system, you know, like a, a, especially if it's like a, an electromagnetic type system, you know, uh, uh, there's no, like, a, like the bullet trains in uh, Japan, for instance, there's no reason you can't get that basically up to Mach 1, right, or, or close enough that it, that, it, the, the, that it might as well be at Mach 1, in which case, uh, at around the speed, your your uh, your your aerodynamic forces over like a lifting body are sufficient for the lifting body to actually work. So that if you have a a, a plane, for instance, that say that that has to launch and then go around, uh, you know, around like, over vast distances in Mars's atmosphere, say powered by uh, by magnesium, which you burn to make magnesium carbonate with uh, carbon dioxide from Mars's atmosphere. Uh, even operating as a ramjet and needing to get to Mach one to actually get off the ground. If it's riding along with one of these sort of train cars, uh, you, you, you might be in a position where you can sort of do checks and you're like, you're up to speed and then for 30 seconds you're like, okay, uh, now we, we release the clamps and you're on your own. If something goes wrong, like you're going to crash. So, um, <laughs> but we got, we got 30 seconds or something like that, right? Uh, check, you know, are the, are the, uh, are the, the aerodynamic surfaces, are they giving you enough lift? It's like, yes, okay. Uh, you know, you turn the engines on, you, you have some time now to make sure that they're actually operating as they ought to operate uh, before you let the, let the clamps go. And then, so, and then um, you know, once you, once you do, you can sort of let it go and then uh, off it flies. But now comparing that to, say, um, uh, having, a, ha- having like a, a, a rocket system where uh, like the, the fuel requirements are, are, are a great deal higher and so on, um, you might be able to get much better performance like from, a, from an air-breathing system. But that translates quite well, actually, to be able to, to land uh, repeatedly in the sense that if you, you can have a, a lifting body that approaches a fast-traveling uh, car to greet it, and uh, you, you might have enough time, especially if there's like a big uh, protrusion on the top of the car, for it to get into position. Uh, and then, you know, like the, the car can adjust its speed, you know, to match up with the, with the aircraft and, uh, over, over a reasonably long period of time, like, you know, uh, perhaps even many minutes, if the length of track is long enough, have it clasp on. And then once it's, once it's rigidly connected, slow the plane down so that the, um, the, the, in practice, you don't need to have, uh, you don't need to have, you know, sand particles actually coming into your engines or anything like that, because if you're landing horizontally, uh, the plane never needs to see any of it because it's all kicked up by uh, uh, rocket plumes that go down range, and you're 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 keeping yourself in the air or using aerodynamic uh, lift, so that then uh, you don't need to worry about this stuff so much. And once you're actually connected up to your uh, uh, your train car, you don't need to rely on an aer- uh, aerodynamic lift at all, and so you can just gently slow down. And if you have like some mechanism for pulling your wings in or something like that, that that doesn't matter either. You could probably get away with it. I've been thinking about this as a uh, a way of dealing with the the difficulties that come with landing, especially on Mars, where what's the old adage in aerospace? It's like uh, the atmosphere's too thin to help, 
but too thick to be ignored, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's like a, a medium sort of ground. I, 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 I like that as a way of launching vehicles horizontally on the Martian surface, but you know, especially like eventually maybe if you want to do SSTOs, like with a well, can you do can you do SSTOs with a nuclear engine? That's the thing. Like I don't know that hypersonic, uh, like su- supersonic flow through an engine can be heated by like a you know a, a little radiator that sits there. Uh, but if you if you can, you know, maybe maybe that's sufficient, like to get you up to orbit, just with an SSTO that doesn't even have to carry any fuel, like if it's nuclear powered. Actually, sorry, uh, random other side note. Uh, since since I have an aerospace engineer, actual practicing aerospace engineer on the line, do you know if that's possible? Can you heat a supersonic flow with like a you know a, a little coil of uh, wire that's heated up, or you know, say a nuclear reactor that's uh, that has the hot face like pointing into the flow. Can you have flow go across it at supersonic speeds that doesn't go below Mach 1 uh, that can be heated up? Or is that just basically not, not practical? Because if it is practical, now you can have basically a scramjet engine without the need for combustion, right? Right. Well, to, to speak theoretically as well, because you're, you're pulling me back to my um, aerospace propulsion days, where, oh, sorry, aer- aerospace versus uh, yeah. rocket engines. but. Yeah, theor- so theoretically, this that is definitely possible. Is if you have your airflow going over this uh, coil for long enough, right? So you can basically trade off having a small coil with slow moving air with a, a rather you know deep coil, for example, with fa- with this fast moving air. Um, you'd still be working within that that supersonic regime, whereas you a lot of the time will slow your flow down a lot, but not necessarily to be uh, subsonic. And then yes, you could impart that heat to it with its standard nuclear propulsion uh theoretically at least I, i'm not about to go out and buy a you know an rtg to start <laughs> testing this but yeah but well like if if you if you could now you, you have an ssto which doesn't need fuel right so well need nuclear fuel but you replace that once a year type thing but you know, so I, yeah i side project that's tangentially related to being able to land things maybe not uh, not vertically of course horizontally in this case uh, but that's again medium to long term solution potentially if it works. I mean, that all goes into the uh, what do you imagine that sci fi future is going to look like? You know, do we have that nuclear powered SSTO? Is that what gets us over the barrier of the the two stage rocket yes, problem? Right. No. And spoiler alert: a lot of things are. It just is either very expensive or there's a lot of political red tape because generally countries and governments don't like you putting uh, nuclear or fissile material into anything that moves fast and is not connected solidly to the ground. Yes. I mean, I, can, I suppose I can understand this in an abstract sense. <laughs> I have some understanding of how the world fits together outside of an, you know, an engineering sort of sci-fi type thing. Uh, occasionally I look outside, you know, I'd scroll through Twitter or something, and I regret that instantly, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, fair enough, fair enough, I suppose. If it's on another world, though, you know, like there's no there's, Mars is basically, a, as far as anyone can tell, a complete hellscape on on the surface. So there's no there's no real problem. Like if um, even if there is a a a, radi- a leak of radioactive contaminants over some parts of the Martian surface, like uh, nothing nothing is harmed by it. Uh, and you know, it should be relatively relatively simple to clean up if you feel like doing this. But I, I don't see that you'd even need to. Some some people in the audience are suddenly like they're they're, they're kind of shocked. They're like, "What is wrong with you, <laughs> really?" But you know, I'm just I'm just saying from a technical perspective, you could probably get away with it. Obviously not on Earth, uh, but you know, 
um this is this is one of my pet projects right especially since now this is more my field right the uh i i, I was a, a nuclear physicist like as a, as an undergrad so um it turns out in space actually uh if all you need to do is uh, get get a um get a uh a, a, a fertile what we call fertile nucleus to absorb one neutron to turn into a uh, fissile nucleus the fertile nucleus is you can find relatively cheaply. So, for instance, uranium two thirty eight. Uh, all it needs to do is absorb one uh, neutron, and now you got uh, effectively what well, then turns to plutonium. Or you know, uh, I don't know. You um, you can get you can get something similar with uh, with thorium, but it's it's a little trickier because uh, it's also like, the the chances of it actually turning into um, uh, the the next thing along. So, protactinium, and then getting eventually to uh, uranium so that you can you uranium 233 so you got like fissile isotope there 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 um it's a lot trickier to do that and of course the protactinium can be interacted with on the way there so i think probably this works better with uranium 238 uh you can get very efficient breeding if you have some big pulse of neutrons that goes through some uh some block of uranium or some mass of uranium 238 you get very efficient breeding compared to inside a nuclear reactor itself. So if you just want to make vast amounts of uh, fissile material, I think that's much easier to do in space than it is even on Earth using conventional techniques. So if you just have, like, say, um, say, say you have like a, a donut-shaped uh, thick steel container inside of which is put a whole bunch of uh, uranium chloride, uh, salt, right? Mol like a, a molten salt type thing. Uh, and then you detonate. Here's why I get in trouble. <laughs> in the middle, you detonate a fusion bomb. <laughs> Actually, we'll probably no, no, uh, two two spheres. Then, yeah, okay, not a donut thing because it'll break the donut. Right. But two 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 sort of uh, hollow bowling balls filled with molten salt. You detonate a fusion bomb in between them, and uh, a huge flux of neutrons comes out, which you can then very efficiently convert into fissile material, so that you wouldn't have to import it from Earth. In fact, space is a great place for breeding uh, fissile material for. Uh, nuclear reactors. Of course, this is what I would use it for, by the way, right? I, I appreciate, again, the political problems associated with a, uh, a cheap and rapid means for making vast amounts of fissile material all in one place. Yeah. But nonetheless, like this could be, this could be absolutely amazingly powerful for, uh, you know, a system for making uh, either, well, either reactor fuel on the surface of the earth if you want to import it. I like you know uh, if we if we mine our own uranium on the surface of Mars, turn it into fissile uranium, and then send it to Earth for uh, for use in reactors and so on, or to start up thorium reactors because they they need some fissile material anyway to start them up. Uh, that's that's potentially good business. But outside of that, you know, like to to set up uh, nuclear air breathing rockets and things like that on the surface of Mars, or to set up normal reactors, I think that's another thing you can do really easily in space. That's just not. It, not nearly so economical if you try to do that on Earth. It takes much longer if you have to sit there for very long periods to breed your uh, your fissile material. Then it tends the, the the product tends to absorb neutrons as well, and then you get uh, you know you get a lot of waste there, which is the the typical problem that comes along with nuclear reactors. In fact, that's nuclear waste. I mean, that in many senses that's what's happening there. Know, part of it. Okay, it's a more complicated issue. But as a as a size thing, that's another thing space can provide. Cheap access to fissile material. Yeah, although I think when you said the word fissile material and detonate in the same <laughs> sentence, you probably lost a lot of sport and maybe got on some new lists. I uh, look, <laughs> I I understand that maybe there there are political issues with this, but 
if you if um if somehow those could be circumvented or there was there was some way you could set that up so that uh you know n- none of it went missing or anything like this right you had complete control over it uh this would be another way of solving like earth's energy problems so you get very clean electricity with you know with material that uh, that could easily be supplied from uh, say like initially from the martian surface but to do this obviously you 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 know if you needed to do fusion detonations it's much better to do that in orbit uh, but with no no potential for uh, contamination or anything like this, and a very high conversion efficiency. So I'm just saying, like I I don't know how to how to solve the the political issues there. And I appreciate probably I'm on several lists now. No, yeah, this this podcast I've talked <laughs> about so much crazy stuff in this podcast already. <laughs> they, they to keep raiding me in, I get in trouble, right? But, but like potentially though, you know, like there's so many little things like this that just crop up naturally, like in conversation. For uh, for space travel, right? Well, like um, it, it lets you solve problems which on Earth are basically intractable, but in space they're actually relatively easy. No, I mean I think you're definitely right. The, at the end of the day, generally, we can kind of do anything with engineering that we needed to do. It's is there the money for it? And is there the the political or law <laughs> that allows us to do that? Uh... Which kind of sounds yeah. You're right. I think I just got on a list by saying that out loud, but <laughs> it's absolutely like feasible to do a lot of uh, problem solving if there wasn't risks associated with it. And we understand why those laws are in place or why they don't want you to just handle fissile material, just hand that out to civilians. But it uh, doesn't stop us from kind of snapping our fingers and being like, oh, that was a, that would have been a good opportunity. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, like that, that spirit, I think, is necessary for innovation as well. You know, like uh, there's... Um, there, there's something to be said for uh, for a political reserve and uh, uh, an understanding of sort of the 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 political and commercial way that the the world fits together and other economic concerns, for instance, sales and so on. Uh, if if you can't convince people to give you money for things, why should you expect them to pay you in the first place? I mean, this is a reasonable point. Uh, but I, I I still feel like the um, the real innovation can come when you're allowed to think in such terms, right? When you're allowed to think completely freely as, a, as an engineer and a scientist and only rein yourself in at the end when uh, other concerns like this are brought up and taken into account. So, I, you know, like, uh, hence, hence I, I, uh, I, tend, I tend to go off like uh, on, on tangents and so on whenever possible. I, like, I, I tend to entertain ideas of this kind because occasionally, you know, uh, good innovations come up and there's also... Even though uh, that's that's probably something that can't be done in reality for uh, for obvious political reasons and so on, which I do appreciate. Uh, it's nice to have as a side note. Yes, but by the way, if you wanted to, you could casually provide enough fissile material for the entire world to use high quality nuclear reactors extremely safely. Uh, it's like at the drop of a hat if you have an inter civilization. Oh, excuse me, interstellar. Good. good okay. <clears throat> Uh, an interplanetary civilization, <laughs> right? Like a big civilization on Mars or something like that. It's really not that big a deal. It can totally be done. It, as a nice little side note, there, there must be like 20 such side notes, right? That's, that's, a, that's a nice one to have. And we've got the solar one as well as, a, as another side note. Yeah, just saying, hey, if you want this to be done, just let us know. And... It, yes, exactly, right? I, if, if you need yeah. this and you can't think of a better way of doing it, we can provide. Space provide. This is this is on the back burner. You know, it is a solution we can use. Like a lot of stuff with space travel in general, is like here's here's something we do if we run out of options. Just so, right? Yeah, nice little. Or you know, uh, I think 
historically people have been able to get these kinds of things through uh, science fiction. So you 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 put it into a, a story or something, and then it enters the public consciousness. I think there's things like um, well. I think I think actually the space elevator, though I don't know the story it originated from. I think it originated the story type thing. Uh, actually, no, don't quote me on that. But there there are plenty of things in science fiction that have originated. Well, excuse me, in in modern engineering and so on that have originated originally from science fiction, right? So just uh, coming up with ideas like this as a tangent, entering into the public consciousness. Many of those are exactly of this kind, right? That things of this kind. So it's like, by the way, if you wanted to. You could fix these problems so much more easily using X than the ways you currently do it, right? So, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways to have that written down somewhere so that it doesn't get completely forgotten. And someone, if you need it, can point out that we can do things in, in the, um, the, the otherwise uh, perhaps politically impractical way, but technologically perfectly feasible way. So I, I like having things like that around. I agree. And at the end of the day, it, all it takes is someone with the willpower to make that happen, and then you're off, really. Absolutely. Now, uh, actually, this is this is something I've been thinking about as well for a long time. Actually, I think I've I've occasionally mentioned it on the on the podcast as well. Uh, I I really want to set something like this up for uh, for for newcomers and uh, indeed for well ev- everyone within aerospace engineering. Actually, say you know if uh, if I can get Elon Musk or Jeffrey Landis to play, then. Uh, by all means, or rather Zubrin, right? Please jump in. Uh, I, I, I doubt they have the time. More's the pity, right? But uh, I, I've been thinking of setting up a game where, um, uh, like a, sci- a science fiction sort of oriented game, where everyone gets to pick or have assigned to them a place in the solar system to start. Everyone is given a set budget at the beginning uh, and a set time frame. So say like a trillion dollars in 30 years, you have to set up a civilization uh, using only material originally that you get from Earth or from where you're going, uh, so that at the at the end of that time, uh, you you know you, either either you you fast forward to the end and then you look at the different designs and then see who what what comes out of that and uh, judge a judge a winner. So it's a competition with the potential to actually win the competition on the basis of what you design, what come what solutions you come up with for living in different places, or better still. Over YouTube or something like that, uh, and with a moderator, you're able to, you know, set up like uh, uh, interplanetary uh, conflicts or something. Uh, pot- potentially, like obviously, the, the potential is there to come up with innovations in areas you'd rather not come up with innovations in. So, like how to actually blow people up in space or something. That's not cool. But you know, you you give it a science fiction slant, like say all the conflict has to happen, like all the actual confrontation has to happen with giant robots that are humanoid shaped or something. Uh, you know, and now. Uh, all the like, you know, you, you come up with propellant ideas or something. So, like, say, say you're setting the asteroids, and you're like, uh, I need a, I need hypergolic propellant, but there's no nitrogen. So, how does that work? How could I possibly, <laughs> right? You're like, ah, but there are ways. It's hydrogen peroxide and triethyl aluminium, by the way, is I think that's the best, the best you can probably do, right? It's like a highly complex intergalactic risk. D- yes, but where where the 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 um the the focus is on like uh, technical innovations. And, uh, you know, like clever, like spacesuit yeah. or like, you know, giant robot design or something like this. All the things that go into building a giant robot in space, the more technical you get, the better. They translate perfectly to um, building like big spaceships or, you know, doing doing uh, unmanned missions and things like this or to, uh, you know, in space manufacturing or putting together large, large ships and so on. Like all the innovations that you come up with within the context of such a game, 
uh, translate perfectly well to real life if you're using good engineering principles. Like uh, solid science is done for all of it, which of course you know uh, that goes without saying. I hope, right? So that like you could have you could have so much fun with something like that, and uh, you know like you you imagine uh, people's videos where they 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 talk about the process and so on and what they get at the end. Uh, that that'd be really exciting. You can imagine loads of people getting pulled into watching that. And uh, provided, I, d I don't know exactly how you'd set that up so that uh, so so that it would be uh, you know coordinated well and you know wouldn't dissolve into like a, I don't know arguments or something like this, right? You'd have to you have to you'd have to have a good moderation set up. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure how you'd do that, but if you could, a game like that might have the potential for all sorts of clever ideas to come out. So I, you know, I'm I, I've always wanted to set this up. It's just that the you know. There seem to be logistical issues here or there that hold it back, but if if they could be overcome, or if anyone can think of a way to really do that, and I don't mean a game like sort of uh, you know, uh, well, it would be like a strategy game where you show up and there's like energy credits assigned or something like this. I, I mean one where you have complete freedom to do engineering innovation in the context of the game, where the intention is to come up with a plan where you have as much control as you want over every engineering aspect. Of uh, you know every design aspect, every like visual aspects and so on. Can you make something that looks cool? Stuff in space that looks cool is also important for you know like the other aspects of space colonization, like sales and presentation to the public and so on. Getting enthusiasm. That all of this is useful. Uh, how however much you can do, everything you pour in should be should be taken into into consideration by the you know the moderators and uh, you know like if you have like a YouTube channel or something like this. Uh, you know, clearly you get more viewers if you do a better job in any of these spheres. As a result, then, if you could get such a game going uh, and have like a, a you know friendly competition between different factions, like uh, taking up different places in in the solar system, you you could surely get all sorts of clever ideas coming out. I I don't know, but it's never happened so far. But I mean, it sounds logistically intense <laughs> to say the very least. The amount of moving factors in that, but. I, I will say I have to shamelessly plug this here that along the same lines of kind of this interplanetary game style, there is a project in NA called Red, uh, Red Stratus or, or Foothold, which is based on the initial steps of Mars colonization, kind of uh, from the Civ style perspective, where you've got different uh, resources controlled by different players, and they do have to work together to try and come up with uh, a way to survive effectively. Though it doesn't quite come to as the complex a, a rule set, maybe as you just suggested, with massive international uh, uh, engagements going on between these technological innovations, it's like a Hunger Games level of complexity going on. Yes, well, well I mean, yes, uh, Red Stratus. Now that's a that's a reasonable uh, compromise for this. That's a nice board game that we have going at Nexus Aurora, uh, which attempts to sort of bridge the gap between. You know, uh, being sort of given a given a pad of paper, and someone's just like design a civilization from scratch. Go, which, by the way, uh, I could, I you know, like I'd be ecstatic. Give me a pot of coffee as well. I'll stay up till five in the morning filling the entire notebook. If you do, if you give this to me, I have no problem. But I'm weird. I like <laughs> okay. Like um, it, otherwise, if you if you want to get into this kind of thing, Red Strauss is actually a reasonable. Um, a reasonable project aimed at really trying to trying to get a, a this kind of thing like a, a competition type thing set up. So that that's a reasonable plug as well. Uh, but it's it's not quite how I imagine it. Like uh, not quite what what I was what I was picturing. Like um, when when uh, when when setting setting this game up in my mind. But um, 
I I don't know. Like uh, it's it, it's its own thing, and it's it's, it's quite interesting. Like I've uh, I've sat in on uh, one of the one of the sessions there, like in the in the past. So that's a nice thing as well that we do at NI. Yeah, we actually were able to play that in uh, Paris at the IAC. Oh, nice. We did our first in person game test, and it was a lot of fun. Yes, no, I oh, uh, should have been able to go to that. That looked like so much fun. The IAC in general. It's incredible to be able to meet a lot of the directors of these high level um, companies that are, are running a lot of the show there. I mean, there's Airbus there and there's there's NASA and CSA and JAXA, but there's also nanoavionics, nanoracks, all the nanos and all the smaller companies and, and they're on up. It's very impressive. Next year is in um, Bagu, Azerbaijan. I see. I don't know if many of the people are, that I met are going though, because most of them asked us if we were going to be there next year. Uh, but the fall, year following that, I think it is uh, Milan, Italy, and then following year is Sydney. So lots of opportunities to come out. And usually also each year we do meet several uh, NA members, like uh, people that we weren't planning to go with as the delegation or who have just heard of us or joined uh, our community. They come up and say, hey, and it's a really cool experience to be able to meet uh, members like that in the wild and, and be able to connect with them. Yes, that, oh, that's incredible. See, uh, it sounds like exactly my kind of thing, right? I'd love to come down there uh, and see everyone. Maybe, wait, wait, where's Azerbaijan? Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't actually know. Where, where's Azerbaijan? <laughs> How far is that? Uh, Eastern, well, on the fringe of Eastern Europe. Fringe of Eastern. Okay, cool. And I sincerely apologize for not being able to be more specific to anyone I... <laughs> who happens to be listening to be connected to the country of Azerbaijan. Um, it's next to uh, Armenia and Georgia. Oh, okay. So that kind of general area, um, if you can imagine that. That's cool. And then, yeah, and then, and then Italy and then, and then uh, Sydney. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite a way out for me to fly. Uh, again, they, they, they don't pay you that much for physics, certainly in the United Kingdom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I got to, you know, I trapped for by, uh, by budgetary concerns, unfortunately. Milan's uh, closer in. I'd love to go to both places, of course. Yeah, maybe. maybe I mean, both of those, but being able to make it out to the IEC uh, or events like this and meet our members or bring out delegations to present papers because we're able to to sponsor those members to come out and pay for their costs is that's like the core of the community aspect of Nexus Aurora is being able to take people who wouldn't otherwise be at these conferences and empower them and give them the resources to bring their ideas to fruition, either in physical prototype or in paper. And then be able to connect with professionals at an industry level. I mean, every paper that we presented, uh, the most recent IAC, we had an industry professional, someone who was connected within the industry, wanting to push that project further and see where it goes. And it, it opens up a pathway to commercialization even for some of these ideas. I mean, for the SAM project, which is the, the robotic project I'm coming from, we were speaking to NASA and JPL context as a result. And I have no no idea in some instances who's going to come up because you think JPL doesn't need to talk to anyone about rovers. Everyone wants to talk to JPL about rovers, but potentially they you know want to have a, a discussion with us about some of the decisions we're making, whether that's from a collaboration or from a, a offer of mentorship perspective, any perspective works. And that's at the core of what we're doing within the community is just connecting resources to really help humanity as a species push forward within space. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be incredible. Uh, I, again, uh, having having a conversation with someone who actually works at JPL, like a, you know, high, higher up, uh, like uh, project manager and so on, or uh, you know, higher up engineers from JPL. That's yeah, I, one of one of many dreams. 
again another dream is Elon right. coming in on on the podcast. Uh, but I I, I don't <laughs> I'm not sure I could function. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, total tingles, right? right? But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I, I can know. imagine. I well, I, I say I can imagine. I can't imagine. I would. I really wouldn't know. Because I don't think no matter what you think about the guy or anyone at that kind of level, it's hard to meet someone like that and not be like, I don't know how to interact with someone of this like stature just in general, regardless of whether I think they're a nice guy or not a nice guy. It's like who, why, how, you know, you just kind of blank. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, as, as a taking, um, Take, taking the other stuff into account, of course, uh, you know, uh, 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 controversies and so on. Like, I, I, the world's a complicated place. Like, I, the more I, um, the more I learn about uh, politics and so on, the, the more I, uh, the more I appreciate this. And of course, uh, uh, running the business and so on, like, uh, uh, seeing the the advantages and disadvantages of presenting certain things in in public. Like, I, I don't really understand how all that fits together. So, you know, like, uh, if if someone's uh, nice to me and we we think we think about the same sorts of things, or it's able, it's possible for us to have a conversation, then you know I'm I'm uh, happy with anyone. Like uh, you know, I'll, I'll happily put aside uh, things like this to the extent that it's uh, it's possible for us to do you know to do this in in the context of the the podcast. So maybe uh, you know I can I can think of maybe like Joshua Blahi or something like this coming on the podcast. Maybe that's not. Not possible <laughs> for uh, for for controversy reasons and so on. Uh, but out outside of that, actually, no, that would be that would be very interesting. Not not within the context of Nexus Aurora, but there's a there's a very interesting conversation to have, and probably the most controversial like I could come up with. By the way, as an example, uh, never mind. Uh, right, but but like, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, never never say never, right? That's that's what we're about is doing those connections. So if we can, if we could get them, and that would be cool, yeah. we'd absolutely love to try yeah 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 absolutely uh, but you know um we we take what we can get uh <laughs> yes no uh, <laughs> so you get me <laughs> no, well, i mean uh you you the the insights you've provided us so far have, have been pretty pretty intriguing actually it's amazing to to have a window into what's actually going on within uh the aerospace industry within the united states like that's actually a really rare thing we've we, we've been uh you know struggling to get uh get a hold of uh you know uh, uh uh, CEOs of uh, startups and so on. Uh, the this is obviously much harder to do than it sounds, but like that that kind of a window, I think, is really useful. Uh, you know, like not just for for conversation, which of course would be fascinating, but also for people just starting up, like thinking, you know, uh, can I really get into this this business? Like knowing that there's so much potential and so much enthusiasm going on right now, that the money really is there, that it's possible. I think that's that's critically useful for uh, people coming up in this industry you know whether it's like high school or whether they're they're going to be graduating soon or something like this or even if they're working yeah. somewhere else and then thinking of going in yeah absolutely and one of the coolest things about that is that you're meeting these people that are high up in these companies which again aren't huge companies but they are i mean from a from a personal perspective is they're just as excited like it, you haven't met people who have run out of the that spirit and they become jaded against the process they're still just as you know giddy as a school way to see stuff launch and get stuff into space and it's so refreshing to be able to to meet people who are also working in the industry are exactly like you and there's so much potential and everyone's excited everyone wants to push forward because all of our goals is do space stuff you know 
at, at some level as if you can abstract it enough, it becomes that level. And so absolutely there's so much opportunity there and there's so much excitement there that anyone who wants to get into it absolutely can. And now is the best time in pretty much all of human history to make an impact on you know the future and the past of, of what we're doing in relation to space. So yeah, absolutely super awesome to, to get into that industry as well um, as to see the potential for anyone that wants to be a part of it in any way, shape or form. It doesn't matter if you haven't, if you have finished your schooling, it doesn't matter if you are 20 years you've spent as a, a certified personal accountant. Everyone has something because we all need an analog of everything that's on earth in space. And there's always some sort of transferable skill there. So really anyone and everyone can. Right. Absolutely. Actually, uh, well, oh, we're, we're, we're running out of time. I do appreciate that the, uh, so <laughs> looking at, looking at recording time for this podcast, we've already gotten to about two and a half hours in. I don't, I don't know how it's happened. Right. I, I was supposed to do a sound check and hopefully everything's okay. I, <laughs> this oh, is the last time my, my co-host will let me, <laughs> will let me do a podcast at time, you know, with myself as a host, a terrible host. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a it's a nice little uh, an, uh, a nice little side thing as well uh perhaps for perhaps for another time uh the ver- various uh, various personality types and so on like um uh the, the the type of person who makes uh perhaps say uh an an, an excellent um uh theoretical physicist uh is not the same type of person who makes a good accountant but obviously you need both but then uh, if you if if you have like a mechanism like say say the the big five personality types from um uh from psych- psychometrics and so on, uh if I whether whether or not it's reasonable is a, a complete completely different conversation. But like if you can if you can find something like that that lets you categorize people who really think differently, that tells you who you can sit next to and then have a uh, like a, a a conversation with where. Their perspective is going to be so different to yours that, like, sort of everything everything you say is going to be um, new for them, and everything they say to you back, like talking about uh, an issue that's important to you, will give you a, a brand new perspective. Like uh, farms for uh, for new perspectives on things. I think about this a lot. As I've said previously, I'd like to interview a uh, a practicing like a, a Buddhist priest or something like this on the um, on the podcast as well to see their their perspective on. Uh, humanity's place in the universe and what it really means to go to another world whether it's possible to spiritually uh to exist in in uh you know like in in a, in a space-based environment because of course like the uh the the insight that you could get from listening to someone so so radically different in, in my case so so radically different to to me uh might be enormous like there must be so much potential for innovation there that doesn't come about because uh people from different fields you know like they have their own interests and then you don't get sort of cross pollination of ideas. It, say, uh, you know, the it, say 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 that there was some mechanism of uh, uh, categorizing people's interests and tendencies and so on, such that you discovered that there were a lar- large sets of people who uh, weren't that interested in uh, in space colonization, or you know, who who tend not to be involved with space colonization, and you were able to just sort of sit down and 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 talk with one such person. Uh, about what you're trying to do, like in this case, space colonization, right? You talk to them about space colonization when they're generally not interested, uh, or just just sort of listen while they they talk about what they are interested in. There's bound to be stuff there that you hadn't thought of before that can lead you down new avenues. 
that, but again, this is a thing for another podcast. I appreciate, you know, <laughs> I've kept you here for like uh, two and a half hours. I'm really grateful for, uh, for you coming on, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Really interesting. I mean, I've been listening to all the other episodes and it's uh, really nice to be able to come on and also talk about, talk about the same awesome ideas you're coming up with. It's just like you were saying, cross-pollination, right? It doesn't matter what industry you are. A lack of specific information can be just as powerful. You know, space is for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, there's, there's, there's bound to be more stuff, actually. That's, that's going to occur to me about 10 minutes after we finish, <laughs> after we finish filming. <laughs> stuff I wish I could have asked you, right? Um, uh, would, you, w- would you be open to coming back on the podcast at some point in the future, like when schedules, uh, schedules permit and so on? Yeah, I'd love to. I know that the scheduling would be a bit weird between the uh, Americas and Europe, but absolutely. Yes, uh, that, that's another major thing. You know, uh, we, we really are like a, a massive international organization, like uh, next to Aurora. You know, we have people from all over the place. It, you know, in my experience, it's really hard sometimes coordinating. Like a, we, sometimes we have like a 12-hour difference in time. Uh, like it was, you know, uh, friends I've got in, uh, uh, we, in, in Australia, like coordinating things together. Uh, Great Britain yeah. and Australia, but that somehow uh, I'll 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 make it work, right? There there'll be some way <laughs> that we can we can get this happening again. I hope in the future, right? Uh, yeah, we'll figure it out for sure. Yes. Okay. Cool. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on again. Uh, that's uh, the 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 Sam project. That's so. It seems like actually you your uh, your interests range through a lot of uh, Nexus Aurora. In fact, I know you're you're heading up. Uh, Sam, which I which I did quite a bit of research on, like in preparation for the the podcast. Uh, but you're uh, so if if people want to want to get in touch with you and so on, uh, I suppose you know the best thing to do is just uh, Discord, right? So yeah, Discord is the best way to get in contact uh, with with everyone, including myself. Uh, I think we have a short link to that is from our site at nexusaurora.org slash discord and then you can also find the specific projects as well as our projects at nexusaurora.org slash projects slash mdrs dash sam excellent cool uh well thanks for coming on again uh you know hopefully next time we can well the sky the sky is the limit perhaps not even that right we'll think of things for the next time uh still th- thanks for coming on and um i guess i'll i'll, I'll close it up absolutely thanks a lot mm-hmm.